play with us, Mommy and Daddy. This week's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you by Stamps.com, The Great Courses Plus, Blue Apron, and our contributors at Patreon.com. Go, my children. We're not scary. We're just kids. Yeah, mister. We're just kids. Happy Halloween, everyone. We're so glad you've joined us. In part one of our series on black-eyed kids, we brought you the mythology and some of the more prominent stories behind it, including the infamous event from 1996 in Abilene, Texas, that many skeptics will tell you was made up and started the entire phenomenon. Tonight... We're going to talk personally to the man that experienced that encounter, journalist Brian Bethel. We also mentioned last week how black-eyed kids in the history of humanity seem to have been intertwined for hundreds, if not thousands, of years. And in part two of our series on them, you'll hear two new listener stories, both predating Mr. Bethel's experience, as well as the creation of 4chan and Creepypasta, these stories will also demonstrate the pervasiveness of the black-eyed kid's presence across multiple cultures and regions. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. When you look into a human being's eyes, you can see the light within them, and these things had no light at all. Brian Bethel. Join us tonight for part two of what has now become a three-part series on black-eyed kids, presented for your listening pleasure in stereo. October has been absolutely amazing for us so far, and as such, we'd like to welcome all of our new listeners. Each show we've released this month has given us what has consecutively been the largest download days we've ever had since we started. However, the brutality of doing four shows in a row has also reminded us why we have to take a week off here and there during the rest of the year. Well, as they say, there's no rest for the wicked. Ah, well put. And now some very, <laughs> some very quick, important bits of news. The most prominent one being that since we were able to get in touch with Brian Bethel and hear his story directly from him, we had more content than we were expecting. So the Black Eyed Kids series has now spontaneously gone from two to three parts. Which kind of wrecks our whole finish this series by Halloween thing. Well, best laid plans of mice and men and all that. Yeah, indeed. Well, additionally, we are dark the week after this show. So we can get outside the studio and try to remember what the sun looks like. Uh, but that means you're going to have to wait until the weekend of November 10th for part three of the Black Eyed Kids. Even though Halloween will have passed, we do hope you'll still be in the mood for this captivating legend because the final show in this series will have an interview with the author of The Chilling True Terror of the Black Eyed Kids, Gary Michael Vasey. We'll also be talking theories, analysis, and ideas of just what they might be in that final part. Make no mistake, though, part two is going to be just right for Halloween. And in our final bit of news, we want to remind everyone that on Saturday, December 2nd, we're having our first Los Angeles meetup at a great bar and restaurant in North Hollywood called Idle Hour. Yes, beginning at 4.30 p.m. Not a.m., right? 
Yeah. Okay, that's a little early. That's when it's ending. <laughs> that's right. Well, I, <laughs> I'm kidding. I, well, there's not. no way I'll be there that late. No, no, no. Unless you pay uh, that early. You, yeah, Depends on how you look at it. Broom closet. Yeah. We will be there hanging out to meet anyone who wants to come out and talk shop. Our regular sponsor, Movement Watches, will even be providing some of their amazing timepieces for us to give away to listeners who show up. Although they may have to answer some astonishing trivia to qualify. And I'm thrilled to be able to announce the attendance of our frequent celebrity guest and friend of the show, prolific television producer and screenwriter Richard Haddam of Mothman Prophecies fame. Although he may not be able to stay late into the evening, he will be there when we kick off at 4.30 and around for at least a few hours. And by the way, have you ever noticed he's never around when the Mothman is? Hmm. <clears throat> Help us be better prepared by keeping track of our head count with an RSVP to the event on our Facebook page or in our Facebook group. And if you're anti-Facebook, you can simply email astonishingcontact at gmail.com. But please put RSVP in the subject line to make it easier for Tess to sort it out from our other incoming messages. Housekeeping finito. So we've received a little bit of a snowball of really great stories that have been pouring in since we made the announcement. And we probably should have made that announcement a couple of weeks before, but we didn't want to spoil the surprise and the fun closer to Halloween. Yeah, so. we kind of like to keep our topics quiet up yeah. until we're about to drop them. And Yeah, you know. I, I personally love mystery. That's why I do it. But the point being is that some of these stories have been great and we've been rushing to incorporate them. And what I like about them is that they are variations on this main theme, which you'll hear tonight, but they all have a similar through line, which is the undeniable part of this phenomenon, you could say. Yeah. And to our knowledge, the two stories that we're sharing tonight have not previously been published anywhere else. They may have been. I didn't specifically ask the storytellers that, but the people that are sharing these stories, they experienced it. They were personally there. Right. This is not hearsay. They didn't read it on the internet. It's not coming out of a, a creepypasta page or whatever, they're telling us what happened to them. And when you hear it from someone who is a witness, it's a different experience. Yes, because it makes it real. And it's something we often try and stress because you have to put yourself into that subjective and objective viewpoint where it's somebody you know now. Now it makes it real. It's not just a story you're reading on a web page. Yeah, it's one thing to look at it on a web page or you go to Creepypasta for fun and you're reading all kinds of black-eyed kids stories. And then after you've done that for a couple hours or weeks or however much time you want to spend doing it, your general overall impression is that that's where the stories live. They don't live outside that world. Right. And we had a comment from a listener who is a fan of the show and has been for a long time, but he said, you know, one of these stories that you told in the first episode is a well-known creepypasta. And uh, that was the one regarding the skinwalkers. Oh, that's right. Jumping yes. the fence. Yes. And we were pretty certain, having done the skinwalker series, that that came from George Knapp's book. And it did. So it would have been written by Knapp or Kelleher. Kelleher was the scientist that was doing the research for Bigelow yeah, at they, Skinwalker. They, right. They co-wrote the book together. Right. And uh, compiled a lot of these stories. Some of these people they had talked to personally or interviewed because George Knapp is a journalist as right. well as a radio show host. You'll sometimes hear him filling in for George Norrie on Coast to Coast. So he's very well spoken. But in this case, they do say in the book that they had not interviewed this person personally, or this family personally, but it is a story that seems to have been organically and naturally collected, you could say. The reason that we shared that story was because it came from George Knapp's book, who is a respected author and journalist. But the point is, even if they made an error and accidentally included it and it turned out to be a creepypasta, what we're trying to say is that the stories that are on creepypasta 
creepypasta is all about cutting and pasting. No, that's, you know, yeah, or, as we said, the name originates from. Yeah, yeah, some people are submitting original work. A lot of people are, but a lot of other people are just copying the original work and sending it somewhere else. Right. So it's a plagiarism nightmare. But, well, they, the, <laughs> but the point is that it doesn't make sense to think that a story that predates the idea of creepypasta and no sleep and that sort of thing, just because it appears on one of those forums, that doesn't automatically mean that it's fictional or was made up for that forum. Yeah, I I think part of it might be generational as well, because if you grew up in an era where you've always had the internet, it will always seem that that's the source of everything. But you have to remember, there were books and researchers and authors and journalists and and, uh, oral history and folklore which generated a lot of the stuff that is now on the internet. The point being for mentioning all of that is that the internet is still the Wild West, and you don't know where stuff has been taken from. Again, there's no way to police any of that, and there's no repercussions, obviously, as we've just mentioned. It's nice, though, to get these stories from actual listeners, from people who have listened to our show, who in some cases didn't even really think what happened to them fit into the Black Eyed Kids narrative until... They heard about the Black Eyed Kids. Exactly, because no one really shares these stories. So getting back to the story about the family from Flagstaff, where the three skinwalkers were trying to scale their fence and for some reason were prevented, supposedly trying to get the family's power, that is in Chapter 5 of the book Hunt for the Skinwalker, titled Curses. So if you want to go check it out, it's in there. I believe that story originated as the family told it from 1998. So it goes back even a little further. But the point about the personal stories that people will tell is that people were saying like, well, why haven't we heard these stories prior to like 1996 and 1998 and Brian Bethel in the internet? It's like, well, people did not have a forum really to exchange these except word of mouth generally. And the reason they don't share these, like some of our guests have said to us and people who have written in with their stories, you don't tell even your closest friends and family members because they give you that look like you're crazy. That's one thing I love about this show. We've put these stories out there and have shared them. And we've had so many letters and people write us with a genuine, sincere thanks saying, I thought I was going crazy with this story, keeping it under wraps for so long. And I thought I was the only one. I'm so glad that I hear other people that have these similar experiences because I know I'm not crazy. And that is the problem with stigmatizing all of this kind of stuff. Because if you flat out don't believe it and you're a debunker and you're a skeptical person, and by the way, I see those as two different kinds of labels. I want to make that clear to our friends who are skeptics. But the idea is that like, if you're just automatically shutting everything down, then what you're doing is you're part of the problem in terms of creating this stigma that when something unusual happens, people are afraid to even share it. That's not the environment it should be in. It shouldn't automatically be, hey, if I tell this story, you'll think I'm crazy and dismiss it. And it's like Forrest always says, whenever something strange is seen in the skies and they run it on the news, usually the local news, (laughs) they immediately start with the X-Files theme. Right. And it's like, (laughs) you know. Well, that's funny. Some of our great fans like Tony on Twitter have sent us in links to stories to that Stardust Ranch. Yes. In in Arizona. Which is for sale. Which is for sale now five for million. $5 million. Yeah, we're yeah. starting to go fund me. Kind of a, kind of a nice Apparently property. the residents have been fighting off alien kidnapping for quite some time. Yes, it's a grab bag, much like skinwalkers, that you have some pleasant alien interaction and then some not so pleasant. And so they're kind of tired of it. That would be the probing. But the local news channel that runs the story, I believe, is an NBC affiliate, so they may not have had the rights to the... <laughs> X-Files theme. So they had to get some library music, which was similarly themed. I get it. You got to run some music underneath it to uh, jazz it up a little. 
fortunately, I, th- I don't think it was all out theremin music, you know, yeah. like you would get from the, the late fifties, but that's the point I want to lead into here. As we go to listen to our first story for tonight, you may not believe it. You don't have to, no one's asking you to also, no one's asking you to debunk this and call out these people. Nobody needs that because I don't care what you think your stance is and what you think the, the universal truth is. You're not going to convince me or these storytellers that you are the sole keeper of the truth as it is throughout the universe. You just have an opinion and it might be a common one, but you also haven't experienced these things. So with that, we present this again, not to try and convince you. We're not going to pull stories from obviously submitted fictional sites or anything like that. So that's why we want to go to the source. And also it just makes the story better. All right. With that, we're going to turn our show over for a minute to our listener, Jasmine, who went out of her way to share a fascinating story with you guys. My name is Jasmine, and I'm an artist that lives in Austin, Texas. I'm originally from Brownsville, Texas, which is where my story takes place. How long have you been in Austin? I've been living in Austin for about 10 years. Okay, cool. And now Brownsville, if I'm not mistaken, it's near the border with Mexico, right? Right. Brownsville is right on the border by the Matamoros bridge in Mexico. Okay. The city of Brownsville is actually where a lot of battles took place for the Mexican-American War. Oh, that's fascinating. And, uh, and that's kind of part of where my story takes place as well. So why don't you tell us your story? I mean, first of all, how, how long ago did this take place? This took place in 2003. I don't remember the time of year, but it happened between 2 and 3 a.m. as I was getting a ride home from work. And, um, The friend that was driving me had a really loud old uh, Camaro. And as we're driving down the street to my house, I lived in a cul-de-sac and there was literally the only houses in that subdivision. It was a newly developed part of town. There was maybe five five or six households that lived in that area. And no one lived in uh, the rounded off part. As we're driving up to my house, you know, there's nothing unusual. I'm trying to like, have him drop me off the house early because I was younger and I had a curfew and I lived with my parents. So I'm trying not to, you know, wake anybody up. I get to my house. I lock the door once I'm inside, you know, and I'm maybe taking five or six steps away from the front door when I hear a loud knocking. And I turned around immediately because I didn't want my friends to bust me coming home late after curfew. And uh, as I swung open the door without even thinking, you know, you automatically think it's the person that dropped you off. And there's these two children at my door. And like I was saying, there's only maybe five families or so that live in this area. These kids were not part of those families because I knew all my neighbors, the houses to the right of me had not yet been inhabited and they weren't even finished being constructed yet. So yeah, there's these two kids standing at my door. Was the knocking particularly loud? Was it forceful? It was kind of an insistent knock, which made me think it was my friend like, hey, you left your phone or you left your wallet or something in the car. And I was just like, oh, crap, people are going to wake up. And I just like, I opened it. And I I wouldn't have normally done that without having checked before because it's the middle of the night. We had a small dog that would alert and we had an alarm when you come into the house. So you open the door, you have those three short beeps. And I was like, okay. I can get by with that, and I don't think I'll awake anybody. And uh, the knocking was so loud. I could hear my parents stirring. I could hear my dog getting a little excited. And so when I opened the door, this kid just, you know, caught me off guard. It was weird because I'd never seen them before. She didn't have any shoes on. It was just weird to see a kid out that late. 
she had this long, like, tattered white dress kind of thing going on. And I don't remember hearing her voice, but I do remember saying, no, you can't use the phone. And I don't know if, like, the question was asked out loud or it was in my head and I was just like, oh, crap, I'm going to get busted. I don't know why you're here. You're kind of wrecking, like, my whole night. I just, like, shut the door just to avoid, like, anyone getting up. Wow, that's really fascinating. Okay, so you're not even sure if she actually spoke out loud to you. I don't remember what she sounded like. I don't remember hearing her voice. I just remember they needed to use the phone. And uh, it was like, I need to call my mom. I have this baby, you know, like my brother or something. And I looked into the stroller and I couldn't see the baby's face. But you could tell by like the size of the legs. I could see the legs. They were exposed. It was maybe like a two-year-old or something because it wasn't a small baby. What In that part of town, it's not unusual to see children that two to three still in a stroller getting pushed around. And um, there was a little baby in there. And I don't really remember a lot of the details on the stroller, but it was covered so you couldn't see the little kid's face or anything. And I was just like, why are these children out in the middle of the night? No shoes. No, you can't use my phone. And as I shut the door... My mom was coming out of her room. She's like, what are you doing? You know, it's late. Why are you opening the door? I'm like, this kid wanted to use the phone. And she's like, well, what did you tell her? And I'm like, I told her no. It wasn't a very big house or anything. So I just, I turned around. There was a a window directly that faced the front door. And I'm like, you can see her right there. My mom was like insisting it was the friend that dropped me off. And as I turned around, like, this is all maybe in about 30 seconds. The kid's gone. So I ran outside. I'm like, where did she go? My mom's like, well, go check on this child. You know, if there's really a kid out there. I ran out. I didn't see anybody. There's nobody on the cul-de-sac. But I was far in from where the street became a corner on the other end. Sure. And there's nowhere she could have gone. There weren't that many houses or like places she could have hid. The houses were kind of far apart. What about like around the side of your house and into the backyard or something? There were fences, wooden privacy fences that were six feet tall. And they started maybe a foot away from where the house had a corner. And we also had sensor lights on the side of the house. So not nothing like that turned on. It was really bizarre. And I, I went inside and I could still hear my friend's car going around the corner. It was a newer part of town that had been opened up maybe four years prior. In 1998 or so, they started breaking ground in that northern part of Brownsville. This was part of where the Mexican American War was fought. The part of town that I was living in, as they were breaking ground, unmarked bodies were being uncovered and they were unmarked graves. So that led the whole city, you know, like, okay, we're going to halt construction on this part of town until we figure out, A, where these bodies came from and like where we need to put them. Going through historical records and stuff, it was found that that part of town might have been family cemeteries because they were ranches and they were like from the 1800s, maybe late 1700s or so. And in the battles of the Mexican-American War, they had actually seen, like, Mexican soldiers that had been buried underground, and they could tell by, like, their garments once they uncovered them and checked them out and stuff. Are you comfortable with sharing where it is, or do you? St- is your family still there? No, they're gone. They live further north of that, which okay. is probably still creepy parts of town. But, yeah, it's North Brownsville, Texas, and it's Alton Glore is the main street, and it's just all along that street. It's a fairly small town, so if you like look it up on the maps, it just stretches from straight across from the west side to the east side. And I lived on the west side, 
the bodies that were being uncovered were found on the east side. And then they had started digging as they were developing slowly. And there were bodies just found like all along that road. My gosh. Okay. So (laughs) did did your parents build that house or were they, someone else built it and they were just the first people to purchase it? I think they were the first. And this hadn't really like come up until we'd already been living there for a while where it was a total poltergeist moment. You guys moved the graves, but you left the bodies behind. I was just about to ask you if you'd seen that movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about the incident in particular. What can you tell us about the way that the girl who you saw, obviously the baby was covered, toddler was covered. You don't remember mm-hmm. a lot about the stroller, but you do remember that you could only see maybe the legs, right, of the baby. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the stroller was big enough that you felt like maybe it was a, as much as a two-year-old child in it. He had like chubby little legs and it was probably an older toddler. Yeah. Okay. Tell us more about the physical description of the girl that you spoke to, like how old do you feel like she was? What do you feel like her background might've been? And you said she was barefoot, right? Yeah, she was barefoot. And that was the first thing that struck me. I don't remember what time of year it was, but it's, it's usually fairly warm out there. It's maybe three days where it's cold and you really need to bundle up. So I don't remember it being super weird that she didn't have like a coat or anything. I was just like, why aren't you wearing shoes? It's dark. And also because there was construction in that area, you wouldn't want to walk out and like a stray nail or something. Sure. Get you caught. She was maybe 12 or 13, about five feet tall. And she looked indigenous Mexican facial features. And I'm Mexican American. And I I've seen like all the photos of like my ancestors and she had, there's a very distinct like roundness of the face. Sure. She just had like straight dark hair and like nothing really distinct about her except her eyes and I I just remember I glanced at her and I'm like oh crap there's like a kid here and I could not look her directly in the eyes I was just all right yeah you gotta go dude and I closed the door and what do you remember about her eyes specifically they were really abnormally dark they were very small too consistent with her features her eyes were fairly small they were just so dark and I was so uncomfortable. I'm like, I can't look you directly in the eye. And like I said, like, I don't remember hearing her talk. So she just like on the whole made me super uncomfortable. I'm like, I can't deal with this right now. How old were you at the time? If it was 2003, I was 19. Are you under the influence of anything fun? <laughs> uh, no, actually, I used to work at a call center. And we didn't get done till about one or so. So then by the time I made it out home and like got to actually get there, um, it was just kind of late. So you were just getting off work. You weren't even coming out from having drinks with friends or anything like that. Well, obviously not at 19, but I guess you weren't. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I know. I was just getting out of work. I was actually a really good kid then. Then. (laughs) Now you're in Austin. All bets are off in Austin. The first thought I had once I looked Brownsville up and I realized how close it was to the border, I thought, could this have been somebody trying to make an illegal crossing or something like that? Brownsville is known for that. But the part of town I was in was not as likely that there would be anyone crossing because it's further north Austin or north Brownsville, I'm sorry. The border's much farther away. And even I can't think of anywhere she would have crossed through and been alone. At the time, now there's quite a few more businesses and stuff out in that area and tons of houses. But at that time, there was a railroad track, like a couple of small stores, like family-owned places with like the house in the back and just a rural road, really. 
And your street was a dead end or a cul-de-sac? It was a cul-de-sac further behind where, like, my street, those maybe two other streets that had been developed so far. So it would have been open, like, broken ground. Right. I understand. It's these developments that are in their, in the phase of construction, and phase one is finished, but phase two hasn't been started yet, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay. You've made it clear. You had fences. So if they'd have gone in the backyard, they would have been trapped. You had lights with sensors. Those did not come on. So in the time that it took for you to explain to your mom why you were opening the door, et cetera, that is the, all the time it took for her to disappear with this stroller and she was completely out of your field of vision. So is there any place that you feel like she could have gone, something that didn't occur to you till later or some way that she could have disappeared in that amount of time? If she ran fast enough and pushed the stroller up, the driveways were kind of on an incline. She might have been able to get into the house, but it were like the next door's house, like entryway, you know? Like an unfinished house or like a finished house? The house next to mine was not finished yet. If she had gone... Towards the cul-de-sac. And I'm going to drawing out a sketch of the girl right now that I was going to email you. Oh, great. We cannot wait to see So that. I can even send you like a little diagram of where everything took place. Okay. That'd be wonderful. So my friend drove me in and we were heading west into that subdivision. My house is on the right-hand side. I get out of the car. He follows the cul-de-sac and like does the UE, turns left and like gets out. And the girl would have had to, I'm not sure where she would have come from because this all happened so quickly. Like I would have seen her driving up to the house. I would have seen her as soon as I ran out because there's not a whole lot of places she could have gone. If she scooched up that stroller, up that driveway, she might've been able to get there in maybe 45 seconds to a minute. And that's if she was really running, you know? Right. When you closed the door, your answer was no. No, you can't use the phone, whether she said it out loud or not. But you didn't give her reason to take off running. You didn't say, I'm calling the cops, get off my porch, you're trespassing, none of that. You just said no and closed the door. Yeah, I was just like, uh, no, and like close the door, turned around. I'm telling my mom, I'm like, there's a kid out there like trying to throw off, like, it's not me that's coming home late. There's a kid out there that needs to use the phone. And she's like, well, tell her no. And then the next day I was telling her and telling my grandmother, my grandmother lived in that house with us. And I'm like, yeah, these kids were at the door. And my grandmother, she's like, I bet they were duendes. And duendes is the Spanish word for the children that they're like not good spirits. And um, it's a good thing you didn't let them in. She's like, you just don't let those people in and beware of like small children. And my grandmother was not very superstitious or anything. She was just like, yeah, you don't let kids into the house if they're coming out at that time. And what would you say to people that said, well, you were in trouble for coming in late. So you made this story up to cover for the fact that you woke up your parents and they came out and you came in too late. What would you say to folks that might say that? I know what happened to me. Like me coming home late was not super out of character, especially because my job, sometimes I stayed for overtime or whatever. So it was more like, don't wake anybody up because if you wake up the dog, everybody's up, you know? Sure. I mean, I'm in my 30s now, so I don't really care if my parents were upset that I woke anybody up 14 years ago. Right. At this point, even if, <laughs> even if you made it up back then, yeah, this, why carry on? This why point, this carry this on? Yeah. I wouldn't still be talking about it. It was something that definitely stuck out to me. And I, I even called my friend after, you know, and I was like, hey, did you see anybody? And he's like, no, there was nobody out there. He would have seen someone coming and or going because I could even still hear his car and because of so, how few houses, you know, like 
he didn't see anybody, but he lived in another part of town where there was a railroad right next to it and saw a bunch of crazy stuff because there was always people like just trying to, maybe we can make it across the train. That whole part of town, there's stories. Sure. And with regard to people making border crossings, first of all, how many children are doing, it would seem that their parents would come with them to me. And also, why would they be barefoot, right? A lot of times kids crossing the border, they're sent alone. Okay, um, it's a so little, that's, I did not yeah. know that. Okay, alone and barefoot? They might lose their shoes in the process. But okay. the part of town I was in was not a likely part for them to just be there unless, I hadn't considered that until now, unless someone dropped them off. But there was just so many weird things surrounding them that like, I have no idea where they went. Sure. I should have been able to see her exiting my driveway as I opened the window and running outside, you know, I didn't even see her. Well, and also if they'd have been dropped off, I mean, I guess by a vehicle or something else, it seems like you and your friend would have seen that when you came home. Yeah, I would have heard something and the streets were just so empty. Yeah. You would have seen something. Yeah, you'd have seen another car. In that street, I was usually the only person that came home after 10 p.m. Everyone else was 9 to 5, so they were home early and stuff. Let me ask you two questions. First of all, have you heard part one of the series we just did on Black Eyed Kids? I was actually starting to give it a listen today. So how far into that did you get? Maybe 30 minutes. Okay. Is it something you were familiar with before you started listening to it? I had actually done some research on it before, and that's when I realized, I'm like, this is a weird thing that happened to me. And my fiance is also into spooky, creepy pasta stuff. So when we were talking about it, he's like, dude, have you heard of Black Eyed Kids? And I'm like, this is a thing. And then I went down that rabbit hole and I was like, oh my God. And I remember telling Amber about it. And she has the story about the three knocks, which she'll have to ask her. Oh. When she asked me about it the other day, I, was, I responded in the text messages, which you saw in the, the email. And um, yeah, I, was, I hadn't actually listened to any podcasts about them, but I'd read stories like about them coming into your cars. And I've like warned people, like, don't let kids into your car if you've never seen them before. All right. So would you say you were aware of Black Eyed Kids prior to this incident? Oh, before this incident? No. Do you feel like you were predisposed to uh, the idea of them before this happened to you? No, I'd, I'd never heard of that as a thing before. Yeah, I don't remember hearing anything. There was just stories like creepy, like, I don't, I don't know, there was always weird urban legends, but I'd never heard anything specifically about children with black eyes and like everything that would befall you if you let them in. What would you say to people that say that these kinds of stories are all made up? I mean, you just mentioned creepypasta, and a lot of people would say, oh, well, this all started. There's the one story out of Abilene with the journalist Brian Bethel. He had the story, and then it became creepypasta, and all that predates what happened to you. But <laughs> you might still not yeah. have been aware of it. So then this thing happens to you. And how do you feel about the idea? I mean, are you making this up because you want to propagate this kind of story? Are you, you know, your fiance's into creepypasta? This is all just part of continuing <laughs> this fictional Reddit no sleep kind of thing? Or yeah, well, how do you feel about uh, that? I would say I wish I was just making this up. That kid freaked me out. I don't want to find out what's in the strollers. And I do not regret not letting that kid use the phone. I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show and tell this story. It's a pretty fascinating story. I think our listeners are really going to like it, and I really appreciate your uh, coming on the show. Okay, cool. Thank you. Okay, Jasmine, take care. You too. Bye. Bye. 
It's getting to be that time of year again. That's right. It's that time of year to send gifts and packages. And I know we have a lot of home crafters out there and artists and other podcasters, you know, people who make things at home and ship them out or have home-based businesses, sending things out for their own marketing. And all that requires mailing out letters and shipping packages. And trust us, we know how frustrating and time-consuming that can be. You should be at home making your stuff and doing your thing, not standing in line at the post office during their cut-down hours in the middle of the day. With Stamps.com, you don't have to anymore, because anything you can do at the post office, now you can do right from your desk at home, any time of the day or night. You just use your computer to buy official U.S. postage for any letter or package, then use your own printer to print it out and slap it on. Also, if you're overpaying for postage because you're just guessing it's enough to cover it, which really adds up, you can stop doing that too because we're going to tell you how you can get a free postal scale and some postage with a four-week trial. It's been a great solution for us because we can also have the mail carrier pick up our outgoing mail. No more trips. It's been working for us, and we think it'll be a great solution for you, too. All right, so here's how to get in on that special offer for a four-week trial that includes postage and a digital scale just by typing the word astonishing. Go to stamps.com, and before you do anything else, look for a little picture of a microphone in the top right-hand corner of the webpage where it says, Heard us on radio or podcast? Click here. And then, you guessed it, you click there. Then just type in the promo code ASTONISHING, hit enter, boom. You just got some of your life back. Once again, go to stamps.com, enter promo code ASTONISHING. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. Hey, everyone. Giovanni from Connecticut here. And when I'm weighing out soil samples, you better believe I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Well, that was uh, as fascinating as it was creepy in that realm. And what I love about that story is that there are some variations to the sighting and to the type of child that shows up at the door. Because this one also has a younger child. And all the ones that I've read, and certainly I haven't seen them all, because there's tons of them out there, both of a fictional variety and also of people saying that they're true. I haven't seen any other ones with stroller involved. No, that is a new variation, like I said, on that. And uh, maybe as terrifying as it would have been. I would love to peek into the stroller and see what was in there. Yeah, there's something about that idea. You know, the first thing I asked, because I know Brownsville is on the border, the first thing I thought, well, is this a border crossing? But where she is is a pretty good ways from there. And she did say, no, it did make sense for kids to be alone, and maybe they would have lost their shoes. So for the skeptics, I think that's probably the first place they're going to go thought-wise. That doesn't explain other things, though. It doesn't explain her seeing the black eyes. It doesn't explain the feeling she had, the idea that they communicated directly into her mind as opposed to speaking out loud verbally, that they suddenly appeared the second she got home and closed the door and then vanished right after she slammed the door in the brief amount of time it took for her to explain to her mom why she had opened the door again. And then she ran outside and got a good perspective. And as you just heard, there's a six-foot privacy fence. There's motion-sensitive lights. The house next door isn't even finished. And also, if they're making an illegal border crossing, then where did they go? The time is odd, but you can maybe explain that, you know, kids being on their own. As we've seen, there were a lot that were picked up this last year, traveling at young ages on their own. But the thing is, if you're doing that on foot and you're actually crossing terrain, it's rocky, it's deserty, it's got a lot of scrub brush, it's hard to cross, let alone with no shoes, but also with a stroller. So she would probably have to have picked up the stroller afterwards. But again, the commonalities here are the eyes and the deep down feeling. And the sudden spontaneous appearance and disappearance. Right. So one thing that I thought was fascinating, I wanted to know if the young girl who showed up with the stroller 
looked very indigenous, you know, very Central American, we could say, and would probably speak either, a, you know, one of the localized languages or dialects or Spanish, assuming that this house she's going to, that possibly the person would speak in Spanish. Jasmine, the sense that she got was that this thing communicated with her in plain English. Yes, I actually specifically asked her that after the interview. I sent her an email, and her response was, I heard the question in perfect English. Yeah, yeah. so... That's interesting. Yeah. Because what is this thing and what is it posing as? And is that the look it's going with? Well, it seems again like, okay, here we are. We've, it's the dispatcher that I talk about this, you know, the dark Lord (laughs) that you heard at the very top of the show today. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He's got bad information. He's like, well, let's see what's going to be most effective here. Who's got the best chance of getting help? Maybe it is someone who looks like they're making a crossing in the middle of the night, their children, they're stuck or whatever. Guess what? You've gotten the language isn't right. Yeah. And also they need to use their mouth when they talk. Well, <laughs> you know, that's it's well, I mean, again, they're getting it close, but they don't need to be totally on. It's not like the end of the world, you could say, for them if they don't get it. They just keep trying because they got all the time in the world, but they want to get it close. So they want to tug at your heartstrings. They want to make an emotional impression because as we say, people's first instinct is it's the middle of the night, it's cold out, this young girl has no shoes and a baby in a stroller. I should help them. And that is the natural instinct for most people. So the no shoes, the fact that they were kind of inappropriately dressed for the weather, you can make that claim that it was a border crossing and they they didn't have the proper clothes. But the whole thing is just very odd. And again, if I had the presence of mind during that encounter and was kind of stalling, I would have loved to have gotten a peek inside the stroller to see if it's some kind of a Rosemary's baby or Rosemaria's baby, I guess. So it's got a kind of a prop person or a secondary spirit, but that also ties in when they show up in pairs. There's an older one who does the talking or the communicating, and then there's a younger one who sometimes does not or usually doesn't. So you're seeing the themes here that to this story that keep coming up. But again, even with all the variations in clothing and appearance and sometimes gender, this time it was a young girl, usually it's not, usually it's young boys, but in this case it was a young girl. And as we heard in the very last story... Sometimes the girls are just as scary. It's an interesting thing. Again, the perfect English is unusual. And the other thing that makes it seem supernatural is, as we just said, it's the black eyes. It's the sudden appearance and disappearance. And here's the great thing, too. Jasmine sent us an email. She is an artist. She drew a picture of this girl and what she saw. And when it came into my inbox, I was like, ugh! (laughs) It's the the small, beady black eyes. Yeah, it's a very... Interesting photo, and it definitely portrays a child with all black eyes. And like she said, a very indigenous look. Um, It's it's a cool painting. She's a talented artist. Uh, By the way, we have a link to her artwork in the show notes if you want to check it out. But in addition to that painting, she also sent us Google Maps of where the house is. You can see where the cul-de-sac is. She's got an external picture of the house. And then she showed on the map where the unmarked graves were that she talked about Mm -hmm. and sent an article covering that whole debacle when they first started developing the area. Yeah. So you can really get a look at everything and how it all works. So it's pretty fascinating to see everything and where it all took place and try to wrap your head around all the details around it. But once again, here we see a case that is just as frightening with that deep down fear, that sense that you should not help this person, because this is not a teenage boy who's kind of weird and filthy and greasy hair, who's kind of demanding and and frightening and looks like he might mug you or whack you with his skateboard. This is a young girl or possibly even a young mother or an older sister with a baby. Now, who doesn't 
feel like that they should help them, you know, especially when they're desperate or at least make a phone call for them. So the lure here is sympathetic, but the deep down feeling that this is bad and evil wins out. All right. So coming up next is the interview that we were very grateful to get with Mr. Brian Bethel, who was the man who actually experienced the story that we shared in part one. A lot of times his story is thought to be the origin story for the whole phenomenon. If you're one of those people that believes that it all started with his story. And I wanted to ask him that question, how he felt about that and how he felt about people who said that he made it all up. And you know what? We got a chance to do that. So even though he's been telling this story a million times for a long time now, since 1998, he still agreed to come on the show. And that was the first thing I asked him. How do you feel about telling this story again? I've definitely told this story more than once. <laughs> oh, my God. I know, I know. <laughs> you know, one of the things we did in part one was we actually told your story. We paraphrased it a little bit, and for the most part, I think it was pretty accurate, but it depends on whether or not the place that I took it from was accurate, which appeared to be a posting from you from 1998. That's probably when it got reposted somewhere else, but yeah, yeah, I mean, the original post was in, I think, July or August of 1997, but I mean, we can get into that if we have to, but it happened in 96, and then and it took me a while to just kind of, uh, I was a member of this listserv for people sharing ghost stories, and finally just one day decided to, to write it up just to just to finally talk about it with someone other than my friend Chad. And uh, there were a couple other friends who knew about it who I felt would be sympathetic. And then that got out into the wild and, and I guess became sort of a prototype viral kind of thing in its weird way. I mean, we didn't have that terminology at the time, but I guess that's what happened with it. What made you decide to finally come forward with it? I had told a couple of people just some of the basics about it. I mean, just in private emails and whatnot. And they told me that I should share it with the wider group. And these were people who I trusted. This was almost like, at that point, sort of a small circle of friends. I mean, it wasn't a very large listserv. And we had all listened to each other and, and shared stories at that point. And I felt confident enough that they knew that I wasn't... <laughs> just spinning a yarn. And I really just kind of wanted to get it off my chest. I mean, I am a writer. I, I'm one of these guys who would write things, even if I didn't get paid for it. And, and I often do. I just ruminate and share thoughts and whatnot. I wanted to, to share this with some people and get their opinions and that sort of thing. And so, yeah, I wasn't really nervous about it. I was more kind of intrigued what people would make of it and that sort of thing. And then all of a sudden it got out. And after it got out, it there was not much that I could do about it. It seemed it just sort of got printed and reprinted. And then other people started coming forward with stories and it just blossomed from there. And now I'll admit that I don't type the search term in a lot because I just become absolutely overwhelmed by how much is out there, and it's kind of reached the point where it's almost impossible for me to do any kind of damage control. I mean, not that there needs to be any, but I guess, I, I mean, especially when people say, oh, this is a known hoax or something like that, uh, and, yeah. and I just want to, and that's kind of what happened with this. I don't go on Reddit all that often. It's not a destination for me, 
But I, I thought I would look around on some of the paranormal stuff that they had there, and I saw a thread about someone who allegedly saw a black-eyed kid or a black-eyed child, as they referred to it. And the second post, the second reply to that was, oh, well, this is, you know, he made this up, and everyone knows that. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. Well, how does that make you feel? I think it's good that you're coming on here. I like that you can come on here and, and maybe put the record straight about that because we have a, a decent sized audience. So maybe this will turn the well, tide on that a little bit. It made me, <laughs> it made me furious, to be perfectly honest. And so what I did was I created another Reddit account under my own name, and I tried to write a thread that laid things out for people. And because of the way Reddit works, you can't post personal information about yourself on there. And the moderators dinged that as personal information. And so they deleted it. So I created a thread under my other account where I sort of obliquely <laughs> said, here are some facts about who I am. You may be able to put things together from there. Right. And, <laughs> and so far they haven't moderated that out, and that's become a pretty good thread, actually. I need to get back to that at some point today. But it just makes me so frustrated to hear this because this is genuinely one of the most frightening experiences of my life. It did happen. I can close my eyes and remember what these kids look like. And even we have now this sort of popular media depiction of horror movies. They always default to this sort of whenever someone's possessed or evil or whatever, or a vampire or what have you, they put in the black contacts. And I'll tell you, even at this point, whenever I see that, I kind of take a mental step back because this is ingrained in me. It's inside of me now. And just even seeing that and knowing that it's fictional, there's still something in my brain that's just absolutely terrified of that now. And it will never go away. And so whenever I hear someone say, and they say ridiculous things like, oh, well, he did this to further his career as a journalist. Well, this is actually the opposite of the thing that I would do if I wanted to, <laughs> to use this to. Uh, I mean, yeah, with a lot of people who just are not going to believe in this sort of thing unless they see it themselves, that's going to strain credibility. I have a good career as a reporter because I'm known to be honest and accurate. This is the sort of thing that I understand naturally make people question, but to me... <sighs> It's just absolutely one of the most horrific things that's ever happened to me and absolutely inexplicable, completely out of left field. All I was doing was just a common errand. So, yeah, I, I do get upset about this, I guess, would be the long of the short of it. Well, I think you're entitled to be upset. I mean, we've covered a lot of different kinds of topics and talked to people that have personally experienced some strange things. And that is disconcerting for them to find out that they are not being believed. I know it was a while back, but it seems like you're living with it a great deal. There was a hint, at least in your web posting, that you said that you kind of got a strange feeling when something was about to happen. Have you had ongoing paranormal experiences in your life, either before or after since then? 
The short answer would be yes. And I mean, when I was a kid, I became pretty interested in the concept of ghosts and, and some other things like that. And like a lot of kids, I read plenty of books on those topics. I guess there's one thing that I've kind of put out there and... I still don't know if this is a dream or not. I mean, I remember I was over at my, and, and the only reason I mentioned this is that it kind of ties in. It's a similar sort of thing. I had this, I'm going to call it a dream, I guess, at my grandparents' house. I was sleeping over there one night. My mom was sleeping in the back room. My dad had just started shift work at a place out of town. He was working a night shift. And so mom felt more comfortable sleeping over there and they had this old black and white tv in their bedroom and i was sleeping in the bed in between my grandmother and my grandfather and this was in the day pre-remote control so to turn it off granddad just reached over and pulled the plug out and that's how the, <laughs> you know he turned the tv off sure but that's an important point because the television was unplugged and i remember waking up and looking and seeing the TV turn itself on. And I knew that it was unplugged. I had seen him unplug it before we all went to bed. And there were these weird creatures on there that kind of looked like, and I described this in another post that's floating around on the internet. They looked, they looked like Muppets, but they weren't Muppets. and They were threatening, and they tried to get me to approach the screen. I wouldn't seemed like they were getting mad at me, and it, this really bothered me, of course, because I'm a kid, and there's these strange things appearing on the screen that look like Muppets, but, I mean, they have these teeth that look incredibly real, I guess, and all that sort of thing. Sure. So I tried to wake up Granny and Granddad, and they won't wake up. I mean, I, I shake them, I, like, try to yell at them, and they just will not get up. And at that point, I panic. I run into the front room, I collapse in my grandfather's chair in the front room, and I try to collect myself. I'm a real young kid at this point, probably like four years old. I try to tell myself, okay, you, you, you had a really bad dream, you've got to collect yourself here. And then I look over at the big TV in the front room and I see the little and you remember this, a little dot of light that indicates an old TV is about to come on and whatnot. Yes. And at that point, I just scream because there's nothing else I can do. And my mother wakes up at that point, comes running into the front room, asks me what's wrong. And at that point, I steal a glance over at the TV and I say the TV and then I see it blink off. Now, mom remembers me screaming and me being in the front room and all that sort of thing, so at least that part is real. And that was kind of the first really weird thing that I can't tell you if it was real or not or a dream or something. But the only reason I'm, I mention it here is because the MO is kind of the same, because there were two of these things. They wanted me to come to them, to approach this screen. I don't know what they were planning to do or not, but these things looked like monsters to me. They were supposed to be in this guise that made me feel comfortable you know, right. as a kid, but they weren't getting it right. right. <laughs> and I guess that kind of is what interests me in retrospect about that. The other big thing is that you know, I went years and years without really much of anything. 
Then I went to college in um, San Angelo, Texas, and got my journalism degree at Angelo State University. And I think they've since moved where they have those offices. But when I was going there anyway, the building that we were in was definitely haunted. And the long and the short of that is that there was a college co-ed who was killed by an ROTC guy with a pair of scissors in the 70s. She was dragged to what became the housing office, but at that point was, I believe, a photo lab for the journalism department by an elevator. And one of the first things I noticed when I started working there late at night, once I kind of moved up the food chain at the student newspaper, was that the elevator would open sometimes at night whenever you would walk by it. And I asked the maintenance guys, is there some sort of electric eye or something like that that opens this thing up or whatever? And they told me no. And this happened more than once, and it became a little bit disconcerting. Then one night, I thought I heard people talking or arguing in the hallway. I looked out. There wasn't anyone out there, and so that was interesting. But then it all culminated with I went downstairs to get a a Coke one night from the first floor. The journalism department stuff was on the second floor of the building, and administrative offices were on the bottom. And I look down the stairs as I'm going down, and I see this pretty young Hispanic woman at the bottom of the stairs. And she looks up at me, and then she smiles, and then she's gone. Okay. And at that point, I went out the back door for a while. (laughs) (laughs) And sort of, what did I just see? So I had to go inside and get my stuff, but I, I remember phoning a friend and whatnot and saying why don't you give me a call later? Because if I don't make it you know, home, you need, oh, man. you need to know. So at that point, the next day I started interrogating people about, was there some sort of thing that happened in this building? And one of the older people working for the student paper went over and got out a big bound collection of archives, turned it to the appropriate year. And right on the front page there, the student paper, there was this picture of this guy, description of everything that had happened. And right next to him was a picture of the girl who was killed, who looked exactly like the girl I saw at the bottom of the stairs. Okay. I'm forced to believe in ghosts. I'll put it that way. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. Is there a history in your family of other family members having similar experiences? My mom has precognitive dreams on occasion, but uh, I mean, not really, not to this degree that I am personally aware of. At least no one's admitting to it if it's the case, but that experience alone was just enough to sort of rewrite reality for me, I guess, and say, well, okay, if this possibility be true, what else is out there? So So you would say that your overall disposition on the paranormal and the unusual and ghosts and everything obviously is 
definitely filtered by the experiences that you've had over the years. And obviously, the, what happened in 96 is prominent. Sounds like this thing at the paper was very prominent as well. Are there an ongoing series of events that are that significant or are those kind of the major hits for you in your lifetime? Those are really the major ones, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I've had synchronicity and all kinds of other things like that that pop up with fair regularity. But in terms of big encounters with things that people would consider to be supernatural, those are probably the greatest hits, I guess. Like I said, when I was a kid, I mean, I thought I saw on occasion a strange thing or two out of the corner of my eye. And even sometimes as an adult, I'll get some sort of feeling in the pit of my stomach or whatever about certain things. But really, since the encounter in in 96, I mean, that's been probably the biggest thing that's happened to me ever since. And the rest of it would just be, by comparison, fairly mundane, I guess. Sure, sure. For people who might wonder about your profession, I know you're a journalist, but what sorts of things do you cover? I'm the senior staff writer at the newspaper, and just because of various things, I've stayed here 20 plus years, I guess, and I've covered pretty much everything. I started out as a police writer. Currently, I cover city government, and I've done education, I've done features. I've been a columnist. I've pretty much done everything you can possibly do except sports and sell ads, I guess. Yeah. How do your coworkers and your friends and people that know you in town, do you find that everyone treats you fairly with regard to all your experiences? I mean, obviously you've become pretty well known. How has that been for you? Generally, it's just something that doesn't come up. I mean, I think it's something that's kind of a known factor, especially since whenever I appeared on Monsters and Mysteries, which uh, was a really interesting experience, I guess. Uh, I went to my boss and I said, I want to do this. And he said, okay, well, I'll let you, but you got to write something for the newspaper about it. So I said, sure. And so, yeah, I mean, this story was published in the uh, Reporter News several years ago. And so, I mean, it was there for anyone to read. And of course, anyone can find it on the internet fairly easily too. On occasion, people ask me about it, but for the most part, it doesn't appear to really have much overall effect. I mean, sometimes people will ask me the usual questions, you know, what do I think they were, all that sort of thing. And for the most part, it's just something that kind of exists, I think, in the background it comes up inevitably at this time of year, I suppose. Yeah, I'm sure. And I'm speaking, uh, I'm actually doing a little talk at our public library on Halloween. Uh, some folks asked me to come and do that, and I said, why not? So it's it's something that I'm willing to discuss, and most of the people who approach me, uh, I would say 98% have been very respectful and interested and I think I've built a reputation here locally as a guy who tells things like they are. So there's never been any sort of confrontational aspect to it. It's just, wow, that's really interesting. Can I ask a little bit more about that? Okay. 
during the actual event, were you aware of the environment quieting, like lack of sound, muffled sound or ambient sounds going away, like bugs, birds, wildlife or anything? I know you were inside your car, so maybe not. But uh, did you notice anything like that or a change in the in the atmosphere? Well, that's interesting. That's a really good question. I would say yes, actually, just because from the moment that they knocked on my window to the time that I cracked it open and looked over, trying to think of the best way to describe this. I mean, it was sort of like the lens on the screen sort of zoomed in. Sure. There was what was happening immediately outside of my window, and then everything else just sort of froze in a way that's metaphorical, obviously, but that's similar to the way I would describe what happened because it sort of felt like all of a sudden that even in that moment, I was kind of knocked off my footing a little bit and things kind of went a little slow-mo, I guess. Sure. (laughs) Because the fear response started immediately. And that was, I think, kind of the important aspect of it. Yeah, I don't remember traffic sounds and other things like that. And this was still of a sufficient time of day where... That theater is off of a fairly major road, North First and Abilene, and that's a a busy thoroughfare pretty much all day, every day. And there should have been traffic noise and there should have been ambient noise and a bunch of other things. But honestly, I don't remember that at all. So that's an interesting question and kind of an interesting detail. It's not really something I've thought about, but I would say that it's not inaccurate in its description. What about, is there any possibility that you might have just been creeped out by a couple of normal kids? That You just misidentified this situation. They had the horrible idea, which I would say would be a bad idea for any kid to go up to a stranger and ask for a ride. But, But I mean, what about the idea that you misinterpreted what happened? What do you say to people that think that? Well, one of the things that you learn Early on, of course, in journalism school, obviously, is that witnesses especially can misinterpret events. You can talk to uh, people at a scene of an accident. What color was the car? And some people will say red and some people will say green. That can happen. I guess there is a very remote possibility that I could have But you see, here's the thing. I've tried to actually recreate this. I've gone back to that movie theater several times. I've had people stand roughly where the kids were. I've done the thing where I look up at the theater marquee because I thought, okay, maybe because the marquee was brighter than the surroundings that maybe when my my eyes hadn't properly readjusted when I turned back and this was some sort of optical illusion or whatever. I mean, I've actually tried to do this. I've gone there and tried to recreate this and debunk this to my satisfaction. And also, if I ever got an email from some random person out there who said, hey, that was me and my friend Justin or whatever, and you know, we're not evil and we don't have black eyes, and I would at least talk to them and, and try to figure sure. out if they could corroborate the scene and certain details about it that I think only people there would know, then yeah, okay, I, then I would go on the internet and say, 
I don't know about all these other people, but from my end, this is solved. And I would totally be willing to do that. I don't think I'm ever going to do that. <laughs> um, yeah. Because I think that what I saw is exactly what I saw. And the thing that convinces me about that is still this immediate fear response, which I've never had before and never had since with anything else. The ghost in the at college was unnerving, but it wasn't scary the way these two kids were. And then just the moment where I realized what was wrong about all of this is something that I will absolutely never forget. And I just, I just feel that it's real, that it happened. And every power of observation that I have tells me that what I saw was objectively what was happening. Now, whether or not someone an outside observer would see the same thing. I don't know because I really don't know. I mean, there's still so many what if variables about what these things are and what they can do and can't do. And I don't know. I know what I saw and I believe what I saw. And that's to me, the final answer with that. Women or girls at the time, however old they were, that were with Chad when you had the phone call, the one that was psychic and told you about the dream, have you had any further contact with her or was there any additional information from her about the nature of what happened to you? I only met her once and now I'm still in touch with Chad. I mean, Chad and I are still great buds and we talk on the phone all the time um not as much as we should but every few months or so there's messages and contact and whatnot and he's married now not to that girl but i met her once uh, i went to san angelo after this and i specifically wanted to talk to her and really all i got was pretty much what she had told me although it was definitely unnerving that she sort of interjected at that moment. I think that one of the things that really struck me about it is that you can sometimes figure out when people are telegraphing sincerity. I mean, it's certainly one of the things that I'm trained to try to notice. And she seemed genuine in her concern and whatnot. And so to me, that aspect of it was interesting. She said that she had never dreamed of these things before. And uh, I mean, I don't really have much to add to that other than I did meet the girl and she seemed sincere in what she was uh, telling me. And she did reiterate that she felt that if I allowed them into the car, that somehow I would have died. That's really all I guess I can add about that. Okay. I did wonder if you could maybe share with our listeners anything that you remember specifically about how they looked, their appearance, and at what point you noticed that their eyes were black. Sure. I mean, we kind of have to get into the, the chronology a little bit for that. But Sure, sure. That's um, fine. We can do that. My internet provider was there on North First for a little while, and they moved to another area and this was pretty early on in terms of internet service being offered in in Abilene and it kind of lagged behind. I mean, I had access to the internet elsewhere and, and kind of really wanted it here and so 
these guys were really the only game in town. And so I went there and set up an account, all that sort of thing. Um, it's trivia. So they had a drop box and I was using the light of the theater marquee to fill out my check, as I've said. And I was just about done. I was going to get out of the car, put it in the drop box and just go about my business. And that's when I heard the knock on the window and I turned over to look and we have two kids there, boys, around the age of nine to 12. And both of them wearing kind of pullover hoodies and jeans. One kid who I've commonly referred to, I guess, as the spokesman, olive-complected, but still somewhat pale skin. I mean, kind of a very light color, but I mean a little bit of shade to it. Curly-headed, a little bit taller than the other kid. In the car, probably came up to about eye level with me, I guess. And he was the one who did all the talking. And as I've kind of described before, this kid was exceptionally smooth for a kid. Most of the time when kids approach adults, and and I've had to interact with plenty of them, interviewing a kid is terrible because they, they don't know what to say and they kind of stammer around and whatnot. But this kid had none of those characteristics about him. And he seemed kind of really polished, I guess. The other kid was in the background, never spoke, never said anything at all. Redheaded, freckles, again, very pale complexion. And he just kind of, like I said, stood in the background, never said anything throughout the whole process. So there's this one kid who, who's literally doing all the talking and he's, hey, mister, we need, uh, we need a ride. We want to see the movie and we forgot our money. We left it at home. Can you take us to our mother's house to get our money? It's not far away. We just really want to see the movie. And I, okay, that sounds kind of like a reasonable thing, maybe. But then this fear response has kicked in, and I don't understand it because normally I would just say either yes or, or no or move on with my life. But and admittedly, the first thing I thought when I glanced over and saw some kids is that they're going to ask me for money or something like that. But, you know, the request seemed kind of reasonable. Abilene is one of those towns that's still kind of friendly enough that sometimes things like that might happen. I mean, I've given strangers a ride before when their car broke down or something like that. So, but there was something wrong and I knew that there was something wrong. I could feel definitely that a sense of danger and especially from the kid who was talking and he could tell that I was nervous. I know he could. And the thing that I just remember, and of course this is in the story, but he started to seem to get irritated with me. He's like, okay, mister, look, we just want to ride. Come on, we don't have a gun or anything, which is not a comforting thing to say. I know I don't understand, but immediately my brain was still like, well, okay, but why am I scared of you? So I look up at the theater marquee because I, I finally say, okay, well, kids, what movie are you wanting to see? And they say, well, we want to see Mortal Kombat, which again sounds like a completely 
yeah, kids would want to go see Mortal Kombat. <laughs> but I look up at the theater marquee, and the last showing is at 9.30. And I look down at my clock, and it's already like 9.45 or something like that. And by the time I take them anywhere, even in a town like Abilene, where you can get pretty much anywhere in 15 to 20 minutes, and they get their money and come back, they're going to have missed the majority of this movie. It doesn't make any sense to me. So at that point, I start to turn to him and I say, well, you know, the movie's already started, and that's the moment. And I don't know what happened exactly, if it's because I broke their gaze or something. But I remember looking up at the marquee, looking back at them, and at that moment, that's when I realized that their eyes were black. And there's this, of course, initial moment of disbelief. You know, I'm not seeing this. There's something wrong here. And then it just became absolutely undeniable in the seconds that followed. And I had not noticed it before. And to the people who say, oh, it was contacts and whatnot, there was not enough time for them in that brief moment for them to don anything like that, especially at that point in time. So anyway, I I remember just freezing for a moment or two. And at that point, the fear became panic. And that's when I said, okay, I've got to get out of here. I don't know what's going on. This is wrong. Reality has turned itself on its head here. And I think I should be afraid of these kids here. And that's when I roll up the windows and I was stammered. Oh, I'm sorry, kids. I, I, I can't do it. I, I remember I've forgot something i i I said pretty much anything that i could think of and i have to wash my hair (laughs) yeah you know just please (laughs) no and roll up the window and just threw it in reverse but in the in the time between i rolled up the window and was moving towards the gear shift i mean that's when the kid in the front just lost it and he started just banging on the window I mean, hard, not just a tap. I mean, you could feel the impact. And he just, I I will never forget his face. I mean, I just won't. (laughs) I can't. And he said, Mr., we can't come inside your car unless you tell us it's okay. Let us in. So at that point, (laughs) I'm just like, (laughs) no, (laughs) hell no. And I throw it in reverse, go out of the parking lot, look at my rearview mirror. There are no kids there. The way that this scene is, there's no way they could have had time to run either left nor right and disappeared behind something. I should have been able to see them. They were not there. I don't know where they were. I remember driving home as fast as possible, everything a blur, and I remember getting out of my car and literally running to my front door, fumbling with the key, getting inside, locking the door, and just basically collapsing on the floor inside and just shaking. I, and after I finally calmed down, I said, well, who who can I call? And I 
said, well, I, I'm going to call my buddy Chad, who is open to these things, and just talk to him about it, because I have to talk to somebody, and that's sort of the way it all went. And yeah, the moment was when I turned away from them and then turned back. And like I said, I can't explain what happened in that short time. I sort of feel like it was whenever I willed myself to look away from them and then looked back that I noticed what was going on and why I was having this fear response to them. Do you feel like their eyes were normal prior to that, or you just hadn't registered the fact that they were black? Do you feel like they changed, or do you feel like they were always that way, and because of the trance-like state you were in, you hadn't seen them? I lean toward the latter, I think. But again, I don't know. Um, There was a feeling that they weren't normal in the beginning, and it was sort of like my brain was unable to parse through the details and figure out what exactly was incorrect. But I guess that was the overall feeling. I mean, in addition to the fear was that something wrong was happening. Something wrong was in front of me. And so I leaned toward the fact that their eyes were black already. And just for some reason, whoever they are, whatever they are, was masking that to some degree. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing the story with us. We really appreciate that. There were definitely additional details in there that we weren't aware of anyway, so that was uh, very gracious of you to tell it yet again. I can't even imagine how many times you've told it at this point. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, how are you with living with the idea that this happened and that these things are out there and not knowing what they are. I mean, have you been on a quest to try and figure it out? Are you one of our listeners thought people were sending you a lot of stories. Is is that happening? Yes, actually, and I still probably get one or two emails a week literally from people who either want to know more or have a story to share or something like that. And not all of them are concerning BEKs or anything like that. Um that's sort of the impact that this has had. And yeah, I have heard stories from folks um, as far away as as Ireland to, of course, here in the States, um, just people who have seen things or um, are just broadly interested in it. I mean, obviously the question that gets asked over and over again is what are they? And I don't have a good answer for that. To answer the direct question, it's not necessarily comforting, I guess, to live in a universe where apparently things like this can and do exist. But I don't really seem to have a choice but to believe that at this point. It's not something that haunts my days or anything like that. Certainly afterward, um, there was this moment of almost, well, there were several weeks actually of uncertainty and whatnot, because I didn't know what these things were. I didn't know what they could do. I had these worries that I was going to wake up one night, they were going to be there at the foot of my bed, and that was it. And um, because I had no idea what the parameters here would be for something like this. Over time, I mean, people ask me, oh, have you ever seen him again or anything like that? And the answer would be no. And I suspect that I won't. 
I think that this was probably a singular experience. Although there are interesting things that sometimes happen when I discuss this stuff with people. Um, the few times I've been videoed about it, camera equipment appears to go a little bit wonky when we talk about this stuff. Oh, wow. For some reason, uh, sometimes audio equipment. So one time, fairly recently, there was another guy who wanted me on a podcast and there were kind of these weird noises that were in the background of the audio that they couldn't explain. I mean, so it's kind of interesting. I mean, the one residual effect is kind of like I said, whenever I see depictions of things that look like them in sort of popular media, I still kind of have a little moment of twinge inside of me, even though I know it's fictional. And other than that, though, it's been a very interesting thing. I've made some friends kind of in the paranormal community. I, I consider a fellow named David Weatherly to be a friend of mine. And he wrote, oh, sure. And he, yeah, wrote, and he wrote a book on the Black Eyed Kids, and he and I correspond and talk quite a bit, and, and we've shared stories and theories and that sort of thing. Some other folks who have done some things on them. There's another gentleman by the name of Jason Offit who wrote a really good article quite a while back on them for a paranormal magazine. I got in touch with him and I consider him a friend. Oh, that's um, great. We mentioned him in part one of our series actually as well. Him and Weatherly. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, it's sort of given me some new connections and uh, I guess it is kind of a quest in a way. I mean, there was a long time there and this is kind of where I think I made something of a mistake where I got tired of talking about this. I felt like I was answering the same five questions or so every time. Sure. I just sort of said, I'm, I'm going to drop this for a while and not really correspond with people all that much. I mean, I'll be polite. And unfortunately, that's kind of the period where this really started to just spiral. And all these websites all these discussion forums everywhere just started talking about this topic. And I think some people interpreted my silence on it in different ways. I mean, if I could go back in time, I think that I would be more open during that period and some of the misinformation maybe wouldn't have proliferated out there. And a lot of people, I guess, interpreted me not saying anything about it anymore as it was some sort of a hoax or put on or whatever. My wife was actually the one probably about 10 years ago who encouraged me to really just rethink this and just say, look, this is a part of your life and obviously a significant event. I know that you still think about it. I know that you still want to know more about it. Do. And so at, at that point, actually, we even went back to the movie theater and she recorded me retelling the story and whatnot. And it kind of went forward from there. And I started to become a lot more open. That's when things like uh, Monsters and Mysteries happened, which was both one of the most interesting and disappointing experiences of my life, uh, I guess. Why um, was it disappointing? First of all, we are not in the Badlands. 
I don't um, know. <laughs> the, right. the theme of the show is the Badlands. Right. We are not. Well, I in did the notice lands. that. I noticed that in the title. I was like, "Wait a minute, this doesn't make sense." Because Force and I had that discussion a week or so ago. You know, offline, he was like, "But that's not where the Badlands are." And I was like, "Oh yeah, you're of course not." No, you see, my wife is from South Dakota. I mean, and sure. I visited her family home. I've been to the Badlands. I know yeah. where they are. <laughs> and yeah. um, because in a weird way, they were originally trying to like pitch this as a travel show or something like that. And right. so I guess anything that has scrub and brush in their mind was the Badlands or something. <laughs> <laughs> right, and right. and we certainly have that here in Texas. So and then there was this sort of infinite series of, well, OK, say that again, but be more frightened. Oh, right. <laughs> Right, And then after that, there was just this, the most annoying thing was that they kept wanting me to add details that weren't there. Oh, yeah. To me, the frightening thing about it is that it just happened. It was not, I went to the supposedly haunted location and something jumped out at me. I was just doing a mundane task. And that to me is what makes it frightening because... It could happen to anybody anywhere, in theory. They kept asking me questions like, now, are you sure that there wasn't a, a string of you know, unexplained disappearances or, either, or murders or anything like that going on at the time? Finally, I looked at her and I said, lady, I was the police reporter at the time. Yes, I'm sure. Were, <laughs> yeah, you knew everything that, was, that was going on. Right. That there was not a string of unsolved murders. Yeah. Abilene had, I think, two murders that year, and, <laughs> and right. that was it. And so, no missing children. And no missing children. And yes, I mean, and they kept asking me these questions to try to build up almost this kind of monster movie atmosphere. And I just was like, lady, I can't tell you these things because they aren't true. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Finally, what they put together was, I mean, I had several conversations with them. Yeah, and Chad was on there too. Yeah, yeah. Um, and his experience was not dissimilar. But um, <laughs> but I had several conversations with them before and especially after all of this. And I said, look, you know what? If you're going to say this or if you're going to do this or if you're going to try to paint this in a certain manner, I don't really want to be part of this, okay? And finally we kind of got to – I wouldn't say that I'm 100% happy with what they put up on there, but it's not as bad as I think it could have been, <laughs> I guess. Okay, so I finally found a great NDE or near-death experience story for Rich Haddam from the Great Courses Plus series, Death, Dying, and the Afterlife, Lessons from World Cultures, Lecture Number 22, Near-Death Experiences, of course. You're not going to mention Rich in every episode, are you? Well, let's just see how long I can run with this. Oh, boy. In 1991, a woman named Pam Reynolds suffered a brain aneurysm. Neurosurgeon Dr. Robert Spetzler decided to perform a surgical procedure whereby he would induce hypothermic cardiac arrest. During her surgery, she had her eyes taped shut and small inserts placed in her ears where they would emit loud clicks that would allow doctors to monitor the brain's response. Pam's heart was stopped. Her brain waves went flat, so Pam was clinically dead. An hour later, after the aneurysm had been removed, her temperature was raised and she regained consciousness. Pam reportedly said that during the procedure, she had felt herself floating over her body, watching the doctors work. She was able to describe in great detail this particular bone saw that was used on her skull that looked more like an electric toothbrush. 
She was also able to recite precise conversations that occurred among the doctors, which were later confirmed by medical records. She then floated out of the operating room and down a tunnel with a light. In the words of Dr. Mario Beauregard of the Neuroscience Research Center at the University of Montreal, she saw deceased relatives and friends, including her long-dead grandmother, waiting at the end of this tunnel. She entered the presence of a brilliant, wonderfully warm and loving light, and sensed that her soul was part of God, and that everything in existence was created from the light. This extraordinary experience ended abruptly as Pam Reynolds' deceased uncle led her back to her body. Dr. Spetzler said that he simply cannot explain her knowledge of the surgical tools and conversations. All right, say it. Whoa. Keanu? <laughs> well, for me, this is absolute proof. Of life after death. No, that oh. with many of the subjects we talk about on the show, you can learn all about it in greater detail from some of the best university professors and experts in the world with a Great Courses Plus. Aha! Well, that is true. And now with over 8,500 video lectures, up from a mere 8,000, on topics like history, science, and language, you're bound to find something that interests you. This really is lifelong learning at its best. And all you have to do to try it out is sign up through our special URL. That's right. You can enjoy it all free for an entire month. So start your free trial today at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Hi, I'm Tiffany, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now back to the show. When we started out, we used to joke about how we nothing had ever actually happened to me or my co-host and how we wanted something to happen. But now that I've done 85 episodes, I've gotten to the point where I'm not convinced I want anything to happen to me ever. <laughs> so, Well, I've been on occasion with uh, groups that go out, quote-unquote, ghost hunting, and sometimes I've done it for an article for the paper, and sometimes I've just gone because... I know the people, they've invited me. And there's one group that I've been out with that's really good, really professional, and if nothing happens, they put in their notebooks and whatnot, nothing happened, no EVPs, no whatever, and just move on. Um, I've been out with other groups where... I saw a girl scratch herself and then claim that, you know, oh, a ghost had done it. Uh, I saw another guy who obviously opened his hand and dropped his flashlight and then said that a ghost had struck his hand. And, <laughs> I mean, oh, you know, and, yeah. and I don't understand what the use of that is other than just people seeking attention. Because I do believe that someday parapsychology could potentially be a science, but not if we have people doing these sorts of things. I mean, we need actual scientists under reproducible, uh, just like anything else. And half the time, admittedly, to go out on something like that is to have a little fun. But, I mean, I don't see what the use of that is And I've seen it more than once, so I'm pretty skeptical when it comes to quote-unquote ghost groups at this point because I really think that the whole reality television version of ghost hunting has perhaps almost irrevocably harmed any actual research that might go on because people have this almost cartoon version now of what this means and uh, that if you talk to people who are actual 
parapsychologists. Like at one point, I was in contact with a guy named uh, Lloyd Arbach, who is a very well-known parapsychologist of the scientific bent. And it just frustrates the people who are trying to do the real work in this field so much to have these goons on the screen basically running around screaming about pipes expanding and explaining it as a paranormal right. activity. <laughs> right. Of course. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting from your perspective because you have an aversion to that because you had an experience that for you is very, very real. And so why make stuff up? Well, see, yeah, that's my point. There's enough difficulty in documenting and proving this stuff already. We don't need the waters muddied by people just claiming to have experiences that they didn't have. And that's why when you asked me, well, is there any more? I can honestly say not really, because, I mean, that was really the last huge thing like that that's happened to me and it wouldn't do me any good to try to conflate some of the more minor stuff into something other than just well that was interesting but that I had this synchronicity or this thing happened or whatever we have to look at this stuff and trust me I mean I get BEK stories and I look at them and by the way, I hate that acronym. I, I really wish <laughs> I'll stop using I, it. <laughs> I, I really, really wish it had been something else. Yeah. And that comes from me being just flip for a moment in there and sure. for some reason yeah. it's stuck and I don't like it. I wish there was even black eyed entity or something like that would be better than But you then know, it would be a uh, bee. Like yeah. a bumblebee. Uh, yeah. So, so, but, um, I look at some of these stories and if, especially if they kind of slavishly follow this kind of template that's out there, which, I mean, if you think about it, for example, alien abduction stories, there's a template there. I mean, people get abducted, they have experiments performed on them, there's missing time, they come back, I mean, all this sort of thing like that. And that's become so ingrained in our minds with popular media and that sort of thing that, that everyone kind of gets the joke when someone talks about that or whatever. But in the same way, there's kind of a template, I guess, of the BEK story sort of based on my and a bunch of earlier reports. And whenever I look at people and excuse a bit too close to that, I kind of put that in a file where it's like, well, they might be sincere, but I'm not sure about that. It, feel, I look it feels for, like creepypasta. That, yeah, because yeah, we've yeah. seen those too. We're seeing those everywhere. The ones that feel more like somebody's telling a story or trying to tell a story as opposed to describe something that actually happened. Right. The ones that I look for, the ones that I find to be exceptionally interesting are when the details are different enough to be compelling. I mean, there's still sort of this overarching thing that goes on with people feeling uneasy or whatnot around them. But there's other details, there's other locations, there's things that are different and unique. Uh, what especially is interesting to me is that folks like Weatherly and, and what have you have found earlier reports things from the 70s, the 50s even, yes, that um, tell me that this didn't start with me. 
Okay. <laughs> because a lot of people treat it that way. They're like, well, you know, I was ground zero or something like that. Looking at the research, that's just not true. And we're finding more and more people who, oh, well, my grandmother told me or this happened or what have you. So to me, that's actually comforting in a weird way because it says that this chronology precedes me and then again continues to go on. And the interesting thing is now we're starting to get things outside of the United States. There was a uh, kind of a big deal a little while ago in England where there, people were seeing what they were calling a black-eyed ghost around. And you, know, you can probably type that in Google and find some stuff about that. But it's just interesting that this is not a uniquely American phenomena. It's not like a, a Bigfoot or, or something like that, which is primarily centered on North America. It's happening in other places. And so I find that to be pretty interesting overall. That's what we found, too. And again, something that we mentioned in part one as well was some of the historical connections. We had listeners writing in, even when they heard we were starting to do the story, we found uh, some information connecting it to some Iroquois legends from the U.S. with a spiritual entity called the Atkan, which was represented mm -hmm. in artwork dating from the 1600s, although the Iroquois got together in the 1200s, they think, because it's a band of several tribes but mm -hmm. uh, that depict a child with black eyes. And then mm -hmm. if you go to Scandinavian lore, there's some mythology there regarding uh, something called the mealings, which maybe you've heard of, spelled M -Y, like myling, but mealing, I guess pronounced mealings. We have a listener from uh, Sweden who sent us a whole long thing describing them, and that lore probably predates Christianity. So sure. there's yeah. a lot of common ground there. So I also thought it was really interesting what you said when you were telling the story about being a kid and the TV, that it sounds to me like you felt on a gut level as you've looked at the big picture of your life and these events that maybe there is a connection and maybe that the black-eyed kids are really just one manifestation of some particular thing. I've certainly toyed with that. There are other little things, other little memories and whatnot. Part of it is the imperfection in both cases of what they were, of how they manifested. Um... It, the first situation was that I, it was almost like a bunch of things that were not human decided to try to put together something that from memories or fragments or something that a kid would find appealing from their perspective, but getting it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and then the BEK situation is sort of similar in that, again, they almost got it right, but there was this still this aura of wrongness about them, and then this one very important physical detail, which is, uh, I mean, I don't want to get you know, draw into the realm of cliche, but of course the eye being the window to the soul and whatnot. Sure. And that's one of the things that really frightened me about it, because, I mean, I remember looking into the eyes and, and not seeing... It wasn't just the fact that they were black. I mean, they were black, reflective. I mean, all the things you would expect. I mean, the light from the theater marquee was bouncing off of them, and, and you could see that. But I didn't see anything in them. It, it was almost like, and I've tried to explain this, that you're looking at some sort of a void or, you know, pictures of 
outer space in areas with no stars or something like that. Yeah. I mean, there was something so unnatural about it. And I don't know that they have souls the way that, you know, and, and I do believe in the obviously in an animating principle that in our case apparently can survive death and, and all kinds of other things like that. But I don't think these things have one. Or if they have one, it's not like ours, I guess. And that's kind of the feeling that I felt from it. I mean, it's like when you look into a human being's eyes, you can see sort of the light within them, I guess. And these things had no light at all. Right. This conversation has gone really well because you've answered most of the listener questions that came in just in the course of our discussion. Yeah. Um, here was an interesting one that I thought maybe you hadn't been asked before, but I'm curious about as well. It came from Eileen sure. Kimmy. This actually brings on two questions for me because we had one story with somebody from Brownsville, Texas. She had an event where she felt like she was being communicated to, but it was not necessarily verbal. She heard it in her head uh, when she greeted these creatures at the door. So my question to you is, and it relates to Eileen's a little bit, are you convinced that they spoke out loud? That's the first part of it. And the second part, which is Eileen's question is, did they have local accents or did it seem like more of a, just a flat tone? Huh. Um, from my perspective, I did see their lips move and they appeared to be speaking to me directly. What an outside observer would have seen or something like that, or truly objective reality at that point was because at that point I was not seeing things fully I don't know. From my perspective, it appeared that they did speak to me with mouth movements and, and all the sorts of things that you would expect. The accent, I suppose, of the one who did speak was he certainly didn't have any Texas drawl about him. And he spoke more like what I would consider an adult. Kids kind of stammer and don't really know what to say and that sort of thing. But this guy... Little, <laughs> the reason I nicknamed him the spokesman is just because it, it's like he was giving me a sales pitch, basically, is, is the way it felt. You know. So there wasn't anything really stilted about it. It was, hey, mister, we need a ride, that sort of thing. Right. And now whether or not this was practiced, I can't say, but the kid definitely had a patter, I guess, if you want to think of it that way. Now, I have heard from other people that when they've spoken to them, that there's something, again, imperfect about that, uh, their inflections are wrong, or they have no inflection whatsoever, and it sounds almost like mechanical. I think some people have even said that there's some sort of tinniness or background or feedback. Or I mean, so I don't know. I mean, all I know is that what happened, from my perspective, was that he spoke clearly, and they appeared to actually be talking. Right. I'm going to leave you with the last listener question, and then I have one final one for you. But Sure. This one comes in from Dan M., and he's basically asking, do you think that someone will eventually get uh, photographs of these things with the occurrences that are happening? And given that, like, I don't know where you stand, but obviously I think there's a significant percentage of what's written about online that are fictional creepypasta type stuff, but there also seem to be real ongoing cases. Do you think anyone will ever get a picture of them, especially now with everybody having smartphones and that sort of thing? But then I guess, again, 
maybe they are not really there. Maybe they're only in your mind when you see them, when you have the encounter. I'm not saying that they aren't real, but that it's a personal experience. I don't know. And what do you think about that? There's a, there's kind of a funny thing I'd like to relate before I get into that. Like I said, I've been contacted by all kinds of people about this. I mean, everyone from the ancient aliens people who I absolutely refused to be on. <laughs> to, <laughs> to, um, I, I'm just not going there. And they still had me, quote unquote, in the episode, but... I was not going to be on there with the guy with the weird hair and all that stuff like that. I mean, <laughs> but <laughs> right. I do draw a line. Yes. <laughs> but there was this uh, television station from South Korea that just called me up at the newspaper one day. And the woman kept asking me questions about Beck, okay, uh, which is how she turned it. And, Tell me when you saw Beck. And whatever, <laughs> but <laughs> and apparently in South Korea, I guess around New Year's, one of the things that they do is they put scary stories on TV. I guess it's some something of a tradition, sort of like the English Christmas ghost story that M.R. James and some folks be and Dickens, of course, became famous for. The woman kept asking me, "Now you have picture of Beck." And I kept telling her, no, ma'am, I don't have a photograph. This was in the days before smartphones or even camera phones, and I didn't have a traditional film camera with me, and I wasn't thinking about taking a picture of them given the circumstances anyway. Okay, but you have picture of Beck. And <laughs> no, I don't, ma'am. And I, this just went on for like five or ten minutes where I tried to explain to her that they really wanted a picture to put on the air, right. but there wasn't one to be had. Right. So I don't know. I mean, it depends, I guess, on what you think they are. If you think that they are something with an actual physical reality about them where they occupy the same three-dimensional space that we do then sure i guess it's entirely possible that they could show up on film if you consider them to be more of a spiritual entity with perhaps an extra dimensional or some sort of other unusual quality about them Probably as much as we get accurate pictures of ghosts, which is pretty much hardly, if ever, at all. I guess that it's possible that someone would take a picture of them. I happen to know that even someone with ridiculously low levels of Photoshop skills can fill in some eyes and make them look black. Unfortunately, we have entered an era now where photographic evidence can't be trusted does not and cannot carry the weight that it once did sure um because in the past you were able to look at a film negative and see if that negative had been in any way altered and then you could look at the individual photograph and see if details had been changed or anything had been airbrushed or someone had through different techniques made things more or less prominent now Anyone with a cell phone camera and the smallest degree of ability can create a photograph that, upon initial inspection anyway, appears to be legitimate. And that, to me, is 
a real problem. I mean, like a lot of people, I've kind of watched some footage on YouTube and whatnot of alleged paranormal happenings and strange creatures and all these sorts of things like that. And as intriguing as I may find some, and uh, recently I watched, there was there's one going around now about uh, supposedly catching some poltergeist activity at school or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah, in Ireland. We talked about yeah, that recently, and, yeah. And, and it looks really cool. I just have to throw up my hands and say, yeah, but it's still probably fake. Yeah. Um, yeah. And... As much as I want to believe that something like that could be captured on film, I think you just have to approach anything like that with just a huge amount of skepticism. And so that has a dual edge here because on one hand, yes, with the proliferation of everyone having a at least a 1080p film camera in their pockets, you would think that at some point every single type of supernatural, paranormal, preternatural activity out there from everything from aliens to what have you would be caught on film and we would have indisputable evidence of that. My problem, though, is that with fakery so easy now, I mean, we've really kind of moved into a strange realm where, yeah, you may have the most convincing footage in the world and you may be completely honest about how it was collected and whatnot and you will find maybe quite a number of people who believe you and then you will find quite a number of people probably a greater number of people who will just not accept what you've collected and so even if you do get the black-eyed kid on film finally you know, even I'm going to have to look at it and say, yeah, well, but how could they make this? To me, that makes me a little bit sad because I would love for someone to be lucky enough. Obviously, I, I don't want any harm to come to them, but I mean, in journalism, we used to have this joke about film cameras where it was F8 and B there, which, you know, camera settings, F8 being the general, yeah, selection of a lens that would most likely capture something from the hip if you had to. Right. And, but now we don't really have that anymore. I mean, we're in an era where we have to trust people more, I guess, if we are going to accept the footage and the photographs that they've taken. And unfortunately, we also live in an environment where it's not easy to trust. Yeah, I guess it's the irony is now we have all this great ability to capture these things, but more than ever, it's really a case of you're going to have to witness it personally before you can be sure. Right. And I understand that. I mean, there's still nothing that replaces personal experience when it comes to this sort of thing. And Obviously, I can't give that to people. I can't say. And it's weird because I have had people contact me, especially locally, who say, okay, well, we're going to go to the movie theater. Uh, what should we do? Yeah. Yeah. And I tell them, well, first of all, I really don't think that you understand what you're looking for. And second of all, I don't think that it's going to work that way. And I've had people tell me, well, we went to stay in that same spot that you said you were at at the movie theater and nothing happened. Yeah. Well, yeah, probably it didn't because 
I think that this was just me there at the right time or the wrong time, depending on your perspective. And I don't understand why people would ever think that this would be something that you could just recreate like that. That's part of the problem with this stuff is that unlike chemical reactions or things that we do at the CERN laboratories and whatnot, you can't do the same experiment to make sure you get the same result. Is the theater still there? <laughs> it is there. Um, really? Yeah, I, I could probably dig up a picture to send you guys. Yeah, you that would want. be great. That would um, be great. A church bought it and is converting it into some sort of a church. Oh, sure. That's happening all <laughs> over the country. That's how, you know, I'm, my wife and I are from North Carolina, and all the little shopping centers and strip centers that have lost their tenants, that's what's happening. Isn't yeah. that interesting? I find it a little bit interesting. That yeah, that particular in. location. <laughs> <laughs> into a church. Yeah, um, the Church of the Black And Eyed weirdly Kids. enough, I mean, the only other thing that, I, I mean, because I, I asked people, of course, and tried to do some research about whether or not that movie theater had any strangeness associated with it. And, oh, uh, sure. I grew up in Coleman, which is a little town about 50 miles from Abilene, actually. So Abilene was actually one of the places that we would go, being in Texas. Driving 90 miles to go get a meal is nothing in Texas. I mean, Yes, I, I have good that, friends there. I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> it's just something that we do. So, yeah. I mean, we would go to Abilene on the weekends, and I actually have wonderful memories of that movie theater before this because it was a second run theater when I had this experience and so Mortal Kombat had been out for a while and then it came more or less to this dollar theater but it was a first run theater when I was a kid and I actually saw the Empire Strikes Back there with my <sighs> grandfather, for example, wow. when I was a kid. So this thing had no negative associations to me at all. But it's interesting that I heard from one or two, and uh, someone even mentioned to this, this to me recently who wasn't connected with the other people that I knew, that several people felt that there was something weird about the women's bathroom, that there was like a feeling of being watched and whatnot. And I've heard that probably now from five or six people who don't know one another, but just when I was telling them the story, oh, well, you know, I always felt weird, you know, whenever I went to the ladies' bathroom there, there was this feeling that you weren't alone or something like that. That could also be creepy theater manager in the attic, right? Looking for Well, <laughs> it could be, yes, but but I still find that kind of interesting yeah. that, that there's some consistency there. Yeah. So who knows? So good luck to them, but maybe they want to do uh, an exorcism or something before they... At uh, the very least, <laughs> bless it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I'm going to leave you with the last and I think probably one of the most important questions. Sure. Did your internet get cut off? I mean, you obviously didn't pay the bill, right? <laughs> <laughs> I did go back in the day, okay. and uh, um, uh, my service was not interrupted. Okay. But anyway, Good. yeah, Good. it was definitely, you just kind of look back on that, and it was just one of those things where all of those elements kind of had to be particularly in place for that to happen, and I don't know. Um, they eventually did move to another location and whatnot, and uh, 
I even kind of made friends with some of the people who worked for them and used to hang out there sometimes at night and never had anything bad happen. But the bill did get paid, although much was owed (laughs) (laughs) later (laughs) because of all this. Well, Brian, I just want to thank you again so much for coming on the show. This has been a really great interview and we feel uh, fortunate to have it. Awesome. Well, it's a true pleasure. Thank you. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. You know, you just can't beat hearing the story from the guy who originally told it. Yeah. If you can make it happen, you got to make it happen, which is why we're so glad to get him. And it did extend this series, but we thought it was important because, as he said, when you heard him, so many people just, again, want to debunk at least the stories like, that's faked. That's obviously an internet hoax. It's a story. And they have no proof either. Right. (laughs) So here he is saying, no, no, at least, you know, I'm a real guy. I can tell you this really happened to me, and I'm the one who wrote it. Whether you believe what happened in my experience or not, I'm at least the source for that. And again, it was interesting. I found that he felt after a while, you get tired of defending yourself all the time, the hundreds, maybe thousands of questions, emails you get and comments that are kind of ridiculous, and you feel like you should speak up, and he got tired of that. But after a while, like he said, if he had kept that up maybe a little bit more, it may have squashed a lot of that because just like the crazy stories, and and what we're saying is that there are a lot of made-up stories in the internet. We certainly don't believe them all. Obviously, there are a lot that are fake, and we talked about one in part one, you know, that appear on the internet. But here in this case, these are real people. You may not believe that they saw exactly what they saw as they described it, or maybe they were mistaken, or maybe you still don't believe that they're telling the truth outright. At least these are real people with real stories. So in this case, at least with this one seminal story, Brian is here to put those rumors to rest. Well, yeah, and I'm glad that we were able to give him a platform to do that, frankly, because that word needs to get out there. It's hard to have to defend yourself indefinitely, especially when your story becomes like this flashpoint for a whole phenomena. And I think that... For me, having talked to him and, you know, spending all the time on the phone with him and everything, I feel like he's a very sincere person. And I feel like he definitely believes what happened to him was real. And I think just because it's unquantifiable in terms of our understanding of how things work and how the universe works, I don't think that means that it's not plausible. Right. And I suppose that skeptics might say, well, how can something be plausible if it's completely irrational and there's no way that science explains it? And maybe that's the flaw in my thinking. And I'm sure that our friend Blake will let me know. (laughs) (laughs) But very nicely. Yes, very very nicely. Uh, Another thing that I sense from a lot of our listeners who are, will say, you guys, this is crazy. The thing I sense, and even from our own personal friends, we have a few friends that just shut down. And we've mentioned this before on the show, so I don't want to go on about it too long. But when it comes to something like this, and they say, well, it's just not possible. And what I see in them when I'm looking at them directly is a fear Yeah, it's a nervousness. Like, they kind of want to stop talking about it. Right. And so what's happening there, and I know there's a different kind of skeptical approach to this kind of thing, but what's happening with these people, I know because I've been with them and some of them are close friends, is that they clearly are afraid that something like this might be real. And so they're rationalizing it away by saying, well, you know, science can't explain this, so it's not real. Where are we going for lunch? (laughs) And that... I see that a lot. And my point is that it's okay to open your mind and entertain this, especially at Halloween. And I, for one, thought that Brian's story was really fascinating. I was particularly fascinated with the things he saw on the TV as a child. Now, even if that was a dream, aside from the fact that he was in the other room and his mother remembers him being all the way in the other room and screaming, seeing these things on the TV in a way, for me, as 
you know, the other day, Audio Boom, our hosts, Audio Boom, who host yeah. and help us with all our ad sales and everything, we uh, we love them. It's a great company. They had done kind of a marketing tweet, and that we got labeled as paranormal investigators. <laughs> Where did you see that? <laughs> yeah, it came up through the Twitter feed. <laughs> well, if that's the case, I want a badge. <laughs> I, want, I want an official, uh, yeah, thing I can wear around my neck. Well, you know, we're not out in the field, but we do investigate from a research standpoint. And as a research-based investigator, for me, when he told that story about the TV, it was a clue for me. I was like, uh-oh, yeah. I'm getting out my magnifying glass like Sherlock Holmes. I was like, <laughs> because yeah. that said to me that these things are things and they appear in different forms to get their message through. I felt like there was a common ground between what he saw as a kid and what he later saw outside the movie theater. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, by the way, he did send us the picture of the theater after the interview, we, right. but I just changed our header image on Twitter to show it. And we'll also have it in the show notes here. Yeah. You know, it's what you expect. It's every dollar <laughs> it's theater. If you're old enough to remember a dollar <laughs> yeah. theater, it's exactly what it looks like. Yeah. It um, gave me the feel of the uh, 80s uh, video arcade parking lot. Yes. Kind of like, you know, not unfriendly. It's not desolate. It's just average, yeah. you know, for a small town. Yeah, well, I mean... Medium to small town, sure. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I thought that was interesting about the Muppets and that, again, it was like things just weren't quite right. They looked like Muppets. It's like, hey, we'll appeal to this kid. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but wait, they have scary people teeth. <laughs> well, that's what he said. It's like you ever see the, uh, the memes, and some of them are kind of funny. I guess, like, was it the Ludicrous album covers? The dog has got human teeth. Or you see these memes with a dog where somebody's photoshopped yes. human teeth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is kind of funny, but it's a little disturbing. Yeah. Baby puppy monkey. That shouldn't be together. That's yeah. not right. But in what you were saying, a couple of things. One, yeah, coming out of the TV, classic Carol Ann, poltergeist, yeah. the hand reaching out. And this uh, is back when that stuff was all analog, too, which yeah. seemed to be a better channel of communication with this kind of stuff. Well, analog seemed to work better. There's different theories on that, yeah. hypotheses. It's like with uh, electronic voice phenomenon, EVPs. If you use something like TV static, if you play that, you can hear voices. And my theory is that they're using that. It's like clay that they can make something out of, but they need that. If you're using analog recording equipment, if you're using digital, you don't need that. I don't know why, you know, but yeah. that's what that's probably has to do with that. the fact that this is all a matrix. <laughs> so it's digital. It's much closer to the original code. It's just, it's just, ones just and zeros. pop out the ones and zeros. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You don't need the material. But I remember when I was a kid, sometimes you'd watch a station wouldn't come in very well. And, you know, you had the rabbit ears and sometimes you had the aluminum foil flags on those. And as a kid, you're desperately trying to watch a station that's got a program on it, wasn't coming in, but it would be mostly snow. But you'd see the outlines of these moving characters, like they were being made out of the static. Well, and invariably you would have to stand also in some super weird position. <laughs> you could do that point too. If you, and hold yeah. it. And if, when yeah. you walked away, it would fall down and you would right. lose so the picture. You, right. So you got tired of that. Your kids but, are so lucky these days. <laughs> but yeah, when you get to your digital signals and all. <laughs> but the idea is that you'd see these shapes because it was the show coming through, but not completely. So you'd see snow made out of these or look like these images. That's kind of the picture I'm getting where he was saying that these kind of muppety puppety things were coming through. And it's like, hey, kids, you know, it's like it. It's like, yeah. don't you want a balloon? Uh, yeah, I want a balloon, but not from you. That's the, <laughs> well, that's a lure. It's meant to lure something in with something from your childhood that's innocent and fun except it can't hide itself completely. It's going to burst out of the seams here because you can't cover it completely. So it's trying. It doesn't really try that hard. Where it's like, what are these, are these human teeth scaring you, kid? You know, there's something wrong about it. I just want to make a comment about uh, basically taking this apart uh, skeptically, which we should always look at those angles. It's like 
the difference between shadow people or a sleep paralysis thing, which I do believe a good percentage of these experiences are just sleep paralysis, you know, hypnopompic or uh, hypnagogic experiences when you're either falling asleep or waking up. Because I've had a few where you think there's somebody there, you get that sense. And I've described this before in another show, I think it's actually the Shadow People show, and you believe that something's there, and then you finally wake up, and it's like, oh, no, no, that was just a feeling. And maybe there was, some, there was a little bit of panic there, because at least for me, the possibility that there was somebody standing there, even in that half-sleep state, you're conjuring an image of a guy just breathing heavily, looming over you, and like, I gotta wake up! You know, yeah, I gotta sure. get out of here, or grab the bat! But you can't, and so that increases panic, and then you wake up, and it's like, ah, oh, you know, thank goodness that nothing was there. Yeah, a lot of that can be explained with a natural phenomenon. I believe a lot of people that tell their stories, it goes beyond that. It's kind of like the near-death thing. We always say this, it can create the, the white light, but some stories go beyond that. What we have here, though, is that these people are sober, they're sane, they're awake, Sometimes it's at night. It's not always at night. Sometimes it's in the daytime. Yeah. There's some through lines. It's usually the eyes. Sometimes people don't even see the eyes because they get a feeling like they shouldn't look at them. Well, yeah. And the other thing that's fascinating to me is that there's a consistency with people noticing the eyes and in some cases seeing them change Yeah, and change when the beings are appearing to get angry. They're getting angry or they can't hold that shape anymore. Yeah. It's like, I can't keep up with this. But it's also something like, he was talking about being able to photograph these things. And I was thinking back to Linda Godfrey and the game camp when they have a late, they laid a carcass out there. And when something mysteriously took the carcass, you should see that on the game cam. If it's a physical creature, it was set off by motion detectors. It's a digital camera. And all they see is is a fog or a mist. A green fog. Yeah. Or a misty green fog. Yeah. I wonder if a person was there witnessing that, what would they see? Is that fog just the medium, the static making the EVP? Is it just, you're seeing the raw elements of that? Imagine a Photoshop image where you have 25 layers all composited to make a single image. If you look at any one of those, like it's just checkers, you know, in the very base image, you're seeing the background or you're seeing a color layer and it doesn't make any sense, but altogether it comprises an image. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it is like the vampire thing where you you can't photograph them or they don't show up in a mirror. One of the other things, too, that struck a chord with me about his sincerity and the difference between what that experience was and the other ones he's had in his life, I thought it was really interesting when he was talking about that murder that took place at San Angelo, which we were able to look up, and we've got links to that in our show notes. It was Leandra Morales who was killed in 1978. And there are quite a few articles that mention the building he was talking about being haunted. So he's not the only one. That's something that I wanted to point out about Brian, because I think some people say, oh, well, if this guy's having all this stuff happen to him, maybe he's got a screw loose or something like that. I don't think that's a fair assessment. What I'd like to say is, much like the black-eyed kids, even stripping away creepypasta and the fictional accounts, he is not the only one that has seen them. And he's not the only one that saw the ghost of that girl at the university. But the reason that I brought this up was I thought it was compelling how he indicated that, yeah, that was unnerving. These two kids was a whole different level of fear. Yeah, that was a good differentiation in that uh, seeing someone, an image of, well, he said a a beautiful young woman. So it's not usually terrifying and she's smiling at him, but she shouldn't have been there. So the feeling he got was that this was an unnatural image that should not have been there, but it's different when you see the kids because he said instantly his fight or flight response 
was raised. The alarms went off. Something's wrong here. Well, they're also, additionally, these are physical beings. They yeah. knock on doors. Yeah. Ghosts, yeah, sure. There's lots of stories of ghosts <laughs> right. knocking, but then you go to yeah. look, nothing's there. Right. These things are knocking and they're standing right there in front of you. And it's not always one person. We, again, we always feel like we have to hit all of these points because, you know, people will write in, well, what about this? Is that, Not that they're trying to play the game of gotcha. They're just saying like, what have you considered that it's only one person and what if somebody else was there? Well, there's been sightings with multiple people, couples, a husband and wife who let them in. The other question people ask, like, well, what happens? All we can tell you right now for this part is nothing good. Yeah. Disease, death, dying, and disappearance. I don't know how many Ds that is, but uh, you can form your own chart. Disease, death, dying, disappearance. <laughs> that's four Ds. All right, the four yeah. Ds. I think that's that got to go in the rule book. The four Ds <laughs> actually should make it five Ds yeah. regarding the black-eyed kids. The first D being don't. <laughs> that is the oh. don't because if you do it's disease death dying and you disappearance get, you get the other four d's yeah, yeah. now i'm up to five d's I five think. d's yeah. well we'll be formulating that uh, hypothesis as we go along my point here is that this is not when you're dreaming although dreams are incorporated as we'll soon hear these are physical creatures that are seen by one or several people not usually in a crowd but sometimes other strangers have seen them as well. The story that we talked about in part one, where we had a listener tell us about uh, going to CVS and seeing a really creepy teenager with a skateboard talking to an older lady, an elderly lady who was reaching in her purse, like maybe to give him something, or that's what she thought he wanted. And then his gaze turning towards her, our listener, and focusing directly on her and having that same feeling and going up to her car and mentioning, like, nice car, I can have it washed for you. It's like, right. Don't and she want had that. an old beat up Honda. Yeah, exactly. It yeah. didn't make sense. And so your, your brain's trying to process that, much like Brian's was. It's like you're trying to make sense of that. Like, wait, the movies, when did that start? What is it? You know, and when the fog clears around the situation, you realize, like, my gut feelings are justified in that something is very wrong and off here. And one thing you talked about the eyes, and which would go against the contacts theories, is that this thing had his face in his window. Yeah close enough to pound on it. And so he got a good look and he said that the eyes were not shiny like you would see with contacts, which would reflect the streetlights coming through the window. It was like these were voids, which then goes back to our last story from part one and that they weren't described so much as black, shiny eyes, but voids where the eyes should be. And to me, that's even creepier. Imagine this, trying to picture that in your head. I, we see so much stuff on movies and TV and it's all digital special effects, but the realness of it, there's something kind of shocking about that. Like if you've ever seen a snake come out of uh, the brush in real life, not in a pet store, not on someone's, around someone's neck, but just by accident, there's something very real to the movement, to seeing it, something that you don't see all the time. And so when you see this, imagine the realness and the, and the fear that you would see with somebody that appeared to have no eyes, just voids where the sockets are. So all pretty creepy. But one thing that he mentioned is the problems he had in retelling his story sometimes to other podcasts, to other journalists or people covering the story. He seemed to talk about some electronic problems and weird noises that were heard in the recordings later. And I thought about the people that had written to us and said they had the same thing and trying to e just email the story. Like, I thought it went through. I had to send this a couple of times. And there was something kind of screwy with it. My computer was acting funny. So maybe there's something there. 
Not unlike our last story for tonight, which was one of the most bizarre and encompassing and full stories of high strangeness that I've ever read personally coming into us, where she also had to apologize and said, I'm so sorry if I've sent this in like 10 times, but my computer was acting up and I don't know what was going on, but I kept hitting send and it acted, you know, kept resetting itself. You know, she so, had to restart it, I believe, yeah, at one point. Yeah. So we actually got the story, I think, twice. twice yeah. Once as a PDF, once as an email. But on her end, she was having a lot of problems. So connections or not, I don't know. It is interesting. Uh, the worst problem we ever had was we fully lost a laptop on Skinwalker. <laughs> it totally croaked. <laughs> one of those man wolves owes us a new laptop. Yeah. Like I said. But, <laughs> so as you listen to our last story for the evening, we hope you can appreciate just the realm and the breadth and the different aspects of it just as a story because if someone were to tell you this around a campfire i guarantee you'd never forget it there's still time to get on board with blue aprons fifth anniversary where they're bringing back the top 20 recipes from the last five years as chosen by their community of home chefs and these are some spectacular dishes because in those last five years, Blue Apron has created over a thousand fresh recipes and no recipes are repeated within a calendar year. So the data set is huge. This is really the best of the best. Just listen to what we're getting this week. Fried chicken and kale slaw with roasted sweet potato and hot honey. Korean beef steam buns with sweet potato tempura and spicy mayonnaise and Tuscan-style pork chops with roasted potato and salsa verde. I've had two of those dishes, and they are delicious and impressive. And speaking of which, how many of you out there have tried to cook a meal for a special someone, and it didn't really come out like you'd hoped? Maybe you scored some sympathy points, but you sure weren't impressing anybody. Blue Apron meals come with easy-to-follow recipe cards, so if you just follow the step-by-step -step directions, making them is virtually foolproof, and you've got an impressive meal in 40 minutes or less. And they send you all the fresh ingredients you need and in just the right amounts, so you aren't trying to substitute creme fraiche with coffee creamer at the last minute. And even if you're just trying to keep your family happy, research shows that Blue Apron families cook nearly three times more often, and cooking together builds strong family bonds. And what family couldn't use more of that these days? Check out this week's menu and get $30 off your first meal with free shipping by going to blueapron.com astonishing. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash astonishing. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. This is Felimai. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. All right, so now we're going to listen to the story sent in to us by Cindy Viegas and read by Forrest. I was about five years old on a family trip visiting all of my cousins and TJ. For those of you who don't know, TJ is short for Tijuana, Mexico. We had a giant blue and white striped van with three rows of seating since there were so many of us, at least 13 people at any given time, a few adults, a few teens, and a line of children following behind. We stopped somewhere to grab snacks. We were inside of a convenience store that I remember feeling was like a small wooden building, almost like a giant playhouse. As a kid, you don't usually feel like you're in a small building, on the contrary, hiding under the coffee table as a clubhouse paradise. In hindsight, it was probably something like a shed that was converted into a little store. My family filled up the place and it was pretty crowded and loud in there. The guy at the counter was laughing and friendly, joking about how maybe we'll buy everything and he'd get to go home early. 
My cousin, who was about 12 years old, and I went into the bathroom and came out to find a completely empty little store. There was no sign of our family, not even an employee. We went outside and didn't see our van anymore. In fact, there were no cars and no people, just nothing and nobody. Somehow, we didn't get scared. We kind of both just shrugged and stepped out into the dirt parking lot. I was way too young to even understand what possible dangers were present to two young girls who were alone. I suppose in a different area, fear may have set in sooner. Mind you, we weren't near all the shopping areas and touristy bars in Tijuana. We were in the town's residential area. Houses were like ranches, though. You might walk a quarter mile before you see the next house. When my cousin said she knew the way home, I felt I had no care in the world. There was no problem, nothing to be afraid of. After all, I had the protection of my giant, superhero, 12-year-old cousin, whom I thought was surely almost as strong as an adult and smart, too. She was going to lead the way, so I followed her and we were joyously prancing toward where we thought was home. My cousin went from zero to terrified in a split second. Nothing had happened and no one passed by. We hadn't seen anything. I don't know what was going through her head. Like if she started to realize that she didn't actually know where we were or that she didn't recognize this neighborhood. That there was nothing around us, no buildings, no one to ask for help. Something hit her and she started sobbing and panicking, repeating in Spanish, We are in trouble. We're going to get hurt. We're in the wrong place. Now, for the first time, I thought, Oh no. There's something really wrong now. I mustered up some courage and I consoled her and told her, We're going to be okay. Let's just keep walking. Someone will find us. I didn't think of staying in place as kids are told to do now. I thought, let's keep walking by the side of the road. As we walked, we spotted a house that was pretty far from the street. The front yard alone was as big as my house's entire lot. I had mixed feelings to say the least. My feet were sore by now, and I knew if we walked that far to the house and no one was there, we'd have to walk that whole way back to the road. There was a swing set out front. I remember looking at it and kind of giggling to myself. That's the kind of swing set I want. The kind with those red and blue stripes coiling around metal poles that had one swing and a swinging teeter-totter. You know, the one that everyone had back in the 80s. You would swing so high that you would lift the poles off the ground and you thought that this was your evil Knievel rite of passage. Anyway, as I looked at that swing set, suddenly two boys appeared. One was running around one of the poles and the other was on a swing. For some reason, it didn't even occur to me that they just appeared out of nowhere. I think I was just happy to see someone, anyone. I turned my head to tell my cousin, See, we can ask them for help. Maybe they know what street we're on. As I looked at her, she was already looking at the boys. Her face lit up in fear, her eyes bulging, and I immediately turned back to look at them. Just as I finished saying this to her, I see the boy who was on the swing running full speed, but he was suddenly more than halfway to us in that brief moment that I had spent turning to speak to my cousin. It was as if he had jumped forward in time like the flash. As he got closer, my heart began to flutter and I realized that somehow, and I, I didn't know why, he was scarier than our situation. He was about nine years old, a little taller than me, and I froze in place, terrified of him. He had on a blue and red striped t-shirt with one thin white stripe placed sporadically between the colorful ones and a blue piping around the neck. His jeans were too big for him and the back of the cuff legs were underneath his heel and shredded. He was barefoot, 
running on dirt and rocks. His hair was dirty and kind of plastered into style, falling forward over his forehead, and I remember even the detail of the split in his hair. I'm about to make an odd reference that might make this less creepy, but somehow the cartoon band member from the Gorillas has always reminded me of him. I look back at these details and wonder how I was able to notice them. It's like he flashed toward us, yet in slow motion. I don't understand and I can't explain it. He came closer, now standing directly in front of me, and I was choking on my paralysis. My cousin grabbed my arm, but she couldn't talk either. He started talking to us, but neither of us understood him. She only speaks Spanish, and I was bilingual, yet we both understood nothing. Of course, looking back, obviously it's possible he could have been speaking any other language, but almost any dialect is at least somewhat recognizable when you know Spanish. He spoke and spoke, and we couldn't understand him. It didn't even sound like a language, it just sounded like continuous mumbling. I felt like the confusion in trying to understand his words almost put my brain on a different track, making it possible to shake off the terror, and I thought to myself, we can run away. A five-year-old's miraculous epiphany. <laughs> Don't judge me. When I broke out of my terrified, frozen state, he looked straight at me with an irritated snarl. I felt like he knew what I was thinking, and worse, I felt guilty for thinking it. I hesitated about grabbing my cousin and starting to run because I felt like it would be rude. How, in terror, was I so worried about offending the boy? I battled in my head about what to do, and then as I looked right at him, his eyes turned black. He started talking again, louder and faster until he was yelling. I now realized his teeth were sharp, and I felt like he could eat us. That was the thought that came into my five-year-old head. I heard my voice in my head say, He could eat us! And with that thought, I made my decision. I grabbed my cousin's hand that was still clutching my arm and started running. There was some kind of feeling that reassured me that he couldn't follow us. And as I thought that, he started yelling to us. His words were suddenly now in Spanish, yelling for us to come back. I looked back at him to be sure he wasn't following us. He wasn't. He was stuck and started yelling louder and louder. Spanish gone, and now the inaudible words rang together in a voice that a child could never have. We ran, seemingly for our lives, and suddenly this empty and desolate area started to look more familiar. I saw patches of grass and pavement on the road. The road in front of us was at a slight incline, and I saw two heads and then shoulders emerge from the horizon line. I could only see their silhouettes with the bright sunlight behind them, but I knew it was my big sister and brother. I tried not to cry when I saw them. I was so relieved but could never admit fear. Everyone would make fun of me. My cousin and I felt like we'd been walking for miles and for hours, and we even thought the sun was going down and were afraid it was going to get dark. I'll never forget because it's been a family joke ever since that when we climbed into the van, everyone was eating ice cream. Ice cream that they had bought in the convenience store where this whole ordeal began. They should have finished it in all these hours. It should have melted by now. I was so confused. How long were we actually lost? 
We felt it was an eternity. My parents and the rest of the family say they barely made it down the street and then turned to come get us. But we were already walking down the road, so they stopped for my brother and sister to go walk to us while they passed out the ice cream before it melted. They don't even validate the fact that I was lost in TJ. They give me that dismissive hand gesture that sweeps away your words as if they're a lie or just plain insignificant. I always thought they did that because they were embarrassed about leaving us and perhaps didn't want to get in trouble. But now, I think that they actually didn't have time pass like we did. For them, it had only been a few moments since they left the store. Cindy Villegas So we actually have Cindy on the phone. We wanted to have her on the phone to talk a little bit about the story because it didn't actually completely end with the part we just shared with you. Did you or your cousin, did you guys ever see that house again or ever go back and find the house where this all took place? I never saw anything in that area again. It seemed like it was a completely new place. And I mean, I was a kid, so it's not like I drove around or anything, but I don't remember ever passing by any of that again, not even the convenience store. And we took that family trip so often that you'd think we'd stop at the same places again. I never saw it again. Okay. So the whole event was a unique experience in that case. Yeah, even though it was supposed to be in our little neighborhood. Do you think the convenience store was real then? Or was that part of another place in time? I've thought about that before, especially since when we came out of the bathroom, it was empty. And I didn't even see an employee. You know, you're you're a kid, you're told, look for an adult, and there was no one there. So it just seemed like it didn't really exist while we were there. So we decided to take a walk away. And But your family has a memory of of the ice cream. That's a family memory, right? That everybody got ice cream yes. at this place. Yes. That ice cream is the reason that no one believes anything that I've said. <laughs> They can't believe my story because they remember it completely differently. They remember it being a very short amount of time, and I remember it being hours of walking. So how could they believe me if it doesn't fit into their memory? Right. But they do remember the event of the store and getting the ice cream, but for them, the whole thing was just a few minutes. Yes. Okay. So you were five years old when this happened. Your cousin was around 12. Is that right? Right. Have you spoken with her about it since then? Or do, do you guys have similar memories of it between you? You know, I haven't talked to her about it. This is big family that's back and forth from Mexico, and we don't see them very often. Sure. I would have to dig and find her to talk to her. And um, I haven't talked to her about it since we were kids. We kind of were told hey, stop talking about that every time we talked about it. And then from like my teen years, I haven't seen her since then. Oh my God. They wanted you to stop talking about it. Yeah. Okay. Which is interesting. I mean, that's sort of what you said in the story too, was that they were kind of dismissive of it. Yeah, they were dismissive of it, but it's also kind of a thing where it might be cultural, but some of the adults were always kind of weary, like don't talk about things like that because you make things happen if you talk about it too much. Well, that's certainly a chilling warning. (laughs) Yeah. You got to take that seriously, I guess. When you guys came out, had it changed? Were there still products on the shelves or did it feel completely different? I honestly couldn't tell you that specifically. I don't remember that enough. I just remember, you know, the hustle and bustle of my whole family taking up the whole place was gone. It was completely quiet and it just didn't feel like a store anymore. 
I remember just feeling like we were in the wrong place. And I don't remember details about products or anything like that. But it was just seemingly a different place when we walked out. With regard to your family and the story, do they agree that you were left behind and that they found you walking down the street? Yes, they agree on that. Okay, so there's no question that this isn't a case of just you and your cousin or you falling asleep in the van and having a dream and just waking up and that, you know, you were already in the van. You definitely got left behind at this location and reunited outside the van. Yeah, so we were left there and they agree on that. They agree that they drove away and they agree that they stopped seeing us walking down the street and had my brother and my sister run over to grab us. They even kind of complained like, oh, because of you guys, we can't go home to eat the ice cream. We've got to grab it now. So the joke is always that they didn't have enough ice cream for us when we got there. Right. And they're like, oh, we we lost you so much that we didn't even buy you ice cream. But <laughs> to them, it's like they drove to the corner and said, oh, shoot, let's stop because <laughs> they're the kids. And that's what it was to them. Right. Right. So when I say that all these other things happen, they're like, you're crazy. When you were walking with your cousin and you guys were going down the road and all this time was passing and you wound up at that house, that strange house, did you notice any other things that were different about your environment? The, you know, the sky, the grass, the ground, the landscape in general, did it look different from what you would normally see there? It looked darker, like it was already going to be sunset. It looked very monotone coming from a photographer. It looked as if like sepia, uh-huh. like it looked like a desert and all beige brown and kind of desolate. There wasn't garden, there wasn't grass. And I remember seeing this long house and suddenly a swing set. But when we left the area after it all happened, As we were running, like I saw the sidewalk (laughs) changing, like it seemed like color was coming back to the world. And then I saw the sun in front of me and my brother and sister, and it was completely different. Oh my gosh. So do you feel like you might've slipped into another dimension or another time or something? You know, I've, I've, I've thought about those stories that you hear about people losing time or seeing some kind of distraction to keep them away from something else or some kind of time slip. I don't know what it's called, but I feel like my cousin and I experienced hours of fear and running and trying to find something. And when we got to the family, it was like nothing, no time had passed. When you saw the two boys, did you ever see the second boy's face or interact with him at all? No. Okay. He was swinging around the pole, like all kids do, you know, yeah. that little thing where you hold on to it and swing around, and he just stayed there. He didn't. He never came up to us. So basically, as you were running away, it seemed to change back into, it started to get more color. The sky was less monochrome, right? And, and uh, it just kind of, you faded back into reality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, what happened. That's so, how I would say it. Yeah, okay, yeah <laughs> all right. Yeah. It was like all dirt and no road, no sidewalk, nothing recognizable. It was just a house and a lot of dirt. And as we were running away, I started to see real life coming back, seeing the sidewalk, seeing pavement and grass and color. I remember the 
orange light behind my brother and sister. But you remember walking on at least some kind of dirt road. It wasn't like the open terrain, like you're out in scrub brush, but you're actually on a like a dirt road. It just wasn't paved anymore or had a sidewalk anymore, correct? Yeah. So it was like you had possibly gone back in time. Yeah, it felt like it wasn't developed yet. Yeah, but the swing set was appropriate to the time period you were in, right? Mm-hmm. Right, so it's like yeah. a mashup of different things. Yeah, and like his clothing was exactly what every boy in my school wore at the time. Like I can pick out that blue and red striped t-shirt in a split second. Right. But his eyes, what did they look like? Completely black. But when he got mad. When he got mad. Yeah. In the beginning, he looked creepy, but normal. And when he started getting irritated, I felt like he was getting irritated at my thoughts, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And his eyes turned black. I feel like he heard me say in my head, we've got to get out of here. We're going to run. I feel like he knew that he wasn't fooling me and he got frustrated and his eyes turned black. And then as he was yelling, that's when I saw his teeth. So when you said they were sharp, are you saying that they all looked like fangs? Yeah, they looked monstrous. (laughs) But they were still, they still fit inside his little child mouth. But they were creepy, sharp, jagged teeth. A lot of what you're saying, by the way, with regard to him being angry at your thoughts, that's a common thing. So the story didn't end here for you, though. You told us that later on, something else happened. You had a dream, I guess, about 10 years later? Yes, I was 15, and I was dreaming. And I was dreaming in real time, if that makes sense. It wasn't like a movie dream where you're watching it happen. It's the experience dream where you're feeling it, and you're there, and it's happening to you. And I was walking through a swap meet, lots of people walking around and I had a tugging on my arm and I looked down and there was a little boy tied to my arm with like a leather buckle strap. And for some reason, as he kept trying to get away from me, I didn't know who he was, but I was feeling like I have to hold on to him because he's dangerous somehow. And I felt like I had to keep him with me or people would get hurt. So as I'm struggling to keep him with me, he finally turns and digs himself into me. Like, you know, like a kid does when they're kind of annoyed, like they want something from me or they haven't taken a nap, digging his face into my waist. And I even put my hand on his head and I was like trying to console him, but he looked up at me from there and I saw his eyes and I realized that he was the exact same boy that I saw when I was five. So of course I freaked out, but I'm still trying to hold on to him. And now I'm feeling more panicked about keeping grip. And he looked up higher and he smiled at me and showed me his teeth. And it was like, I could hear his thoughts saying to me, I know you recognize me. And yes, that's who I am. And as soon as I validated that with my thoughts, like, yeah, I know who you are. It seemed like he was so satisfied with that. And he scratched at my arm and got away from me and ran away. And if that's not creepy enough, (laughs) I woke up that morning with some deep red scratches on my arm, the same arm that he was holding in my dream. Ooh, was that the last time you saw him? Yes. Okay. 
Yes, thank goodness. <laughs> oh my gosh. Do you remember what his eyes looked like in the dream? Were they black or were they? did they seem more normal this time? It's funny that you say that because they were like smoky black. So I could still see like expression, if that makes sense. Because he just had this sinister satisfaction on his face. Like he was so excited about scaring me. And like he needed to know that I knew who he was before he got away. Like, I think he could have gotten away at any point, but he wanted to make sure I knew him first. Right. What do you think it means in the dream that you were kind of like a protector? That was your responsibility is to keep him from hurting others. What do you think that that means in your dream? Maybe it's because I had so many kids in my family who I felt like I had to take care of. Maybe it was just all this combination of my own personality, but I couldn't pinpoint that for you. In the original incident, do you feel like you were the one that was more instrumental in getting you and your cousin out of there, even though you were the youngest? I do feel that way because she was pretty frozen. She didn't say anything to them. She didn't say anything to me like, hey, let's get out of here. We should keep going. She's pretty much just standing next to me holding my arm. That area seems to be pretty mystical just all on its own. Of course, being the Southwest, there's a lot of legend and lore. We had another listener named Jasmine write to us about uh, her experience in South Texas. And her grandmother spoke up when she told the story that happened to her and said, oh, it's uh, La Duendes. Her grandmother immediately kind of knew what she'd experienced and said like, oh yeah, don't mess with them. So she thought they were kind of like, goblins or pixies or demon children or something. And that was like something that I think she wasn't familiar with, but of course the older generation knew about. Well, there's definitely been talk of demon children. No one's ever been so specific to describe them, but it's just kind of a term that has been thrown around. People have always said things like that in my family. I could spend hours telling you creepy stories from growing up, but one thing that my mom used to tell us was... Drink water before you go to bed, because if your spirit gets thirsty at night and gets up to go drink, it might not come back. Oh, These were our childhood stories. We- <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, did they use the term uh, duendes or uh, el cucuy or anything like that? Oh, yeah. The cucuy was definitely our boogeyman. You know, it was difficult because sometimes my parents kept that kind of stuff hushed. I know they spoke a lot about an aunt of mine who was very superstitious and they were completely afraid of that. So they would try to knock any conversation that started about it, you know? So it's interesting now that we're all older, people are starting to talk about it. And like with all my sisters and cousins, everybody's telling stories now. And we didn't before when we were little because we were told not to. In terms of all the stories that you have, would you say that you have more stories than other people in your family? Are you predisposed? Have you had ongoing issues? Would you call yourself sensitive to this kind of thing? I think I have more stories than most people. Okay. I've been kind of the creepy one since I was a kid. Sounds to me like there's uh, some stuff out there trying to get your attention. Yeah. I think that that's why it's always been such a big topic around the family to like leave that alone and don't talk about it because I know that my mom was very sensitive and she would see things at night and she'd scream and wake up and tell a whole story. And I think she was so afraid of it that 
when we ever talked about anything, she was kind of like, hey, stop, stop, stop. I just got to say again, thank you for coming on our show. I think you should, um, uh, you had mentioned to me that you were thinking about starting a show of your own, and it sounds to me like you got plenty of material. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have too much material. I want to hear other people's stories. So yeah, I, I definitely want to start my own show and do what you guys are doing and giving people a, a safe way to talk. I started out really nervous because, you know, when you've told the story so many times and so many times people have told you you're nuts. It's nice to just be able to get through the whole story without that interruption. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We feel very fortunate that you came on and decided to share it with us and our listeners. And also, I want to thank you and your daughter, Akela, for providing the Spanish and Spanglish voices for our uh, sound design, because that was it was nice to have that be authentic. Of course, anytime. Cindy, I don't know, if you, unless you have some questions for us, I think that's going to wrap it up for today. But we just want to thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate you listening. Thank you. Well, one thing I love about that is that it's two paranormal experiences, I think, rolled into one or several rolled into one. You have a time slip story and maybe another slipping into another dimension temporarily where these things live. And getting her on the phone after we told her story, I thought one of the enlightening facts that wasn't in her story, but that she just said a minute ago, was the color changed and the environment. And like you said, there was the time slip nature of, you know, the dirt road and no sidewalk and no pavement. But on the other hand, the swing set was period correct for when this took place, which was in the 80s. Sure, sure. It could have been a little earlier, but yeah, around the same time. Yeah, yeah, it may have even been earlier than that. People who have described slipping into another time or possibly another dimension. And there's plenty of stories out there like that. I I know that sounds crazy, but people have reported that in the middle of the day, night, different things where, you know, they're an hour early, they're five hours late, something really weird happened. Sometimes they've also described that where the sky looked different, a kind of a tinged yellow or sepia even. Right, which is exactly what she said. And she's a photographer, so. Right, she knows colors. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, So that's not all that unusual. People describing the trees and the sky and the things around them looking different. Even some of the buildings didn't look right. That's what this story had. Plus, I love the idea that he was speaking some kind of gibberish. It reminded me of speaking in tongues. If you've ever seen that, I know it's a Christian thing with some Baptist and Pentecostal denominations, and they see it as something good, something spiritual. But it sounds kind of... uh, unnerving to those who are not used to it. Yes. And if you've ever been uh, in a foreign country, and not that there's an altercation, but maybe there's a misunderstanding and the person's kind of speaking to you in this language, you're not getting it, and they get kind of more frustrated at you, that's also an unnerving feeling that you're not communicating and you're just not getting it. And in this case, they weren't in the touristy areas. This is not, you know, somewhere where somebody's trying to ask them, where's Papa's and beer? You know, it's like, this is out kind of in the residential country area, and these kids should have spoke Spanish. Yeah. But they didn't. Well, they did. It's like the last moments of Terminator 2, the T-1000, we're just trying everything. It's turning into everything. It's every person it's ever pretended (laughs) to be. Yeah. yeah, It's just going through its library of stuff, and here, where it's getting more frustrated, it kind of lapses out of its gibberish language and into Spanish, and then when it's really angry, just into kind of a twisting metal sound. Yeah. So that was pretty frightening, but a great story. Well, and I, you know what I really enjoyed too was her reference to gorillas. Oh, (laughs) I mean. If you don't know, folks, that's a band that was put together by Damon Albarn and Jamie Hewlett. 
And what they have is cartoon characters, basically. They're kind of a, a little bit manga, anime style of, uh, of animation, kind of jagged and pointed style there. But yeah, they, they are... had that huge hit. Clint Eastwood was the name yeah, of the song. Yeah, right. And I ain't happy. I'm feeling <laughs> glad. You know, that's the yeah. last time I'm singing on this show. No, but that's but very just for good. you guys who didn't remember yeah. who they were. Right. I don't I think know that's the last heard that time, song. But very well yeah. done. Yeah. <laughs> very well done. Yeah. yeah. No, it was a so. huge hit. But these are cartoon characters. They have their own invented backstory about how they came together as a. It's not like they actually are cartoon caricatures of the real people. They're just characters. Now, I'm not sure if Damon Albarn came up with these caricatures. But the leader of this cartoon band, Murdoch Nichols, is described as a Satanist hoodlum. And uh, right. the, the, uh, the drummer, Russell Hobbs, is a transplant from New York City, but he was demonically possessed and now is possessed collectively by the bandmates he used to hang out with, uh, the rappers and the, and, the, and the beatbox guys that he used to hang out with in New York. And that's why he has all these uh, musical influences. Kong Studios that they supposedly record in is supposed to be haunted and uh, within the confines of a cemetery in England. So when Cindy mentions that one of the characters from Gorillaz reminds her of the kid that she saw, you totally get it when you actually look at a picture of, of this character. And, the, and I think the character she's talking about is named Stu Pot. And his nickname is 2D because he's got two dents on each side of his head given to him by Murdoch uh, in accidents. And when you look at the caricature, the drawing of it, you totally get what she's talking about. He has jagged kind of mussed up hair with that big split that she was talking about in the center. He's got a mouthful of jagged, sharp teeth. And of course, the main characteristic, he has two very large, all black eyes. So this Tuesday, October 31st, Halloween, and forever after, when you hear a knock at the door and it's a kid or two, look them in the eyes and make sure that all they want is a piece of candy and not a piece of your soul. That's going to wrap up part two of our series on black-eyed kids. We'll be dark next week, but back the week after with part three. Please remember to support our sponsors. And if you'd like to attend our meetup in L.A. on December 2nd, RSVP on Facebook or via email to astonishingcontact at gmail.com. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Giovanni. Bison, Tiffany. Philly, my. Esposito. And I give permission, permission to Astonishing, astonishing legends, legends to use my voice however they see fit. Galaxy-wide in perpetuity. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. <laughs>